All right. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Black Muse Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Muse, a.k.a. The Black Muse, and we are at it again. I am so happy uh, to be uh, making new episodes in 2023. I think this is the second uh, podcast episode that I've made in 2023, and I'm very happy uh, to bring on a special guest, like almost always. Actually, I think yeah, like almost always, with the exception of maybe one guest I've had, this guest is another guest that I've met through the social audio app called Clubhouse. And I'm very excited to have him on because he's actually a very thoughtful person. Uh, he's a person that I really, really, really enjoy having conversations with. Um, it's another. It's a man uh, by the name of Che Hammond. Che, how you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. It's been a while since we've interacted. Uh it's been it's been a cool minute. How's it's, life? It's been it's been a while, you know. I've been I've been busy with life. You know, I, it's funny because I used to be on Clubhouse a lot where we met, and um, my wife would always say, "Like God, like you know, how do you get the time to be on there? And why are you arguing with these people? And <laughs> all that kind of stuff, right? These people are strangers, and you're arguing." But you know, I try and tell her, "No, it's you know, yeah, sometimes it's a little I'm, heated." I'm gonna yeah. give you some advice as an unmarried man who's never been married before. Don't you let Clubhouse ruin your marriage? <laughs> no, you know, well, that's part of the reason. Don't why you do I'm it. Not, uh, that's part of the reason why I'm not on. I, you know, sometimes you I have, have to, to choose. If you have, have to choose between a happy office. wife or clubhouse, you choose that wife every wife. time. Don't even. Every it's not even a comment. Every time. Yeah, choose the wife. Um, I understand you have you have you have your little ones. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Two 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 boys um, who are handful. Um, yeah. So they're asleep right now. But um, but if you start to hear kids in the background or something, that's that's that'd what's be, going that on. Like so. They're awake. They're awake. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't mind me asking if there's any, if these are too personal, feel free not to answer them. I'm not trying to no. you know, dox you or anything. Um, what are the age ranges of them? Uh, so they are, uh, they're going to be five and going to be eight. So five and eight. Uh, basically. So they're, they're young ones and they're two yeah. boys and they are, you know, they're at the age where they, they like to fight. They like to wrestle. They, uh, yeah, they're, they are a real handful at this point. Some of them come out the womb fight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean, well, you you have a brother, right? So you I have so two you younger know. brothers. Oh, two younger brothers. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but no, so I'm talking know. about personal experience. I came out the womb fight, and I have mad at the world. <laughs> I was like, why am I here? This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, no, but I, I I actually teach six year olds. Uh, right oh, now. okay, okay, I teach okay. First graders, so I, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm I'm quite familiar with that age range. Um, yeah, the 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 eight year old would be more third grade, but. Yeah, in the context yeah, we, of elementary school, I interact with students at that age on a regular basis. I, I got I have, I'm in, uh, I'm in charge of sixteen to six year olds all at once. It's a lot. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we, yeah, we've got kindergarten and second grade. Our, our oldest kind of because where his birthday is went in. Okay. To school a little bit late, but, um, but yeah, my wife. Um, again, if we're getting all personal here, but my wife. Um, uh, was in middle school for many, many years. And then just recently at the beginning of this year, I transitioned to elementary school. So okay. she is also uh, in that space now where she's got kindergarten up to sixth grade. Um, yeah, so. most of my teaching experience, I started off in middle school and then okay. I went to, to high school. I got a little bit of elementary school experience when I was in Hawaii, when I used to, that's where mm. I started teaching. And then I moved here and I was high school. And then I transitioned in from, from one year to the next, from high school to first grade. 
Oh, wow. Like ninth and 10th. I was a long-term sub. I was teaching ninth <laughs> and 10th grade Spanish. And then I just went all the way down to first grade. And wow. uh, that transition is a heck of a transition. Because yeah. all of a sudden now, I got kids. Like, like I, all of my teaching experience in certain situations, this is <laughs> like, what is happening? So I got, you know, kids have an accident in class. And I'm like, mm-hmm. word? I don't even know. Like, mm-hmm. what? They're like, mister, mister. I need new pants. Mm -hmm. Why? And then they just look at me because they're embarrassed. And I'm like, oh. (laughs) Uh, And then the rest of the class is doing their like, oh, he wet himself. I'm like, no, no, everybody stop paying attention to that. I was just like, no, I didn't handle this well. I don't want to like embarrass this kid or scar this kid for life. It's like so much pressure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I think think if I didn't have kids, I, I would not be equipped to to deal with that situation at all. I think having kids and going through that, like I, I have different perspective on like how to handle, you know, young kids and, and stuff like that. But but for you, like going in, just kind of like, you know, leaving into the fire. I went in blind. Nobody warned me or nothing. I was yeah. just like, what is that? I think, well, I think probably the reverse would be true. I aspire to have kids one day with the right person. And when I do, I think that my experience with these youngsters is going to help me in some on some level. Yes. Preparing yeah. to raise my own kids, um, at least with respect to that age uh, range. And I interact with the kindergartners because they're right next door to us. I interact with them all the time. They're just a year younger. Yeah. Um, but they're so little. These are really tiny people. <laughs> Yeah, and they're are. so all over the place. They get they're really really excitable, and so you can yeah. fascinate them with things. And I love yeah. that childlike fascination yeah. with things. We're about to we're heading into Black History Month, and and yeah. most of my kids are, are are kids of color. Actually, I think all of my kids are kids, students of color. Yeah, I don't have a single non-student of color. And we're talking about figures like George Washington Carver mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King. And uh, I was explaining the basic concepts of what segregation was, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to make it age appropriate because <laughs> I don't want yeah. to, because it gets brutal. And yeah. I'm not trying to scar any kids, but I want them to fundamentally understand what was going on. And they were asking such inquisitive questions like, like, did Doc, what happened to Dr. King? Like, mm-hmm. like, how did he die? And one kid goes, he was stabbed in the back. <laughs> and I was like, oh. technically, <laughs> not quite, though. Yeah. Like, he was assassinated. They're like, what's that mean? And I was like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. they're first graders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, he was shot. And they're like, what? He was shot? I was like, yeah, he was shot. They're like, by who? Was it that black guy right there? I was like, nope. Because <laughs> we were watching, like, this thing. And it was yeah. just like, wow, they were super into it. Wow. And then... uh. They were like, I want to hear what he, I want to see what he looks like. Like, I want to see what he sounds like. So I found some videos. And uh, and then I was like in this awkward situation because the video I had watched before, I knew he was going to use the term Negro. And I wanted mm. to prep them. Like, I don't want you repeating this word, <laughs> but he's yeah. going to use this word. But what he means by it is this. And they're like, what yeah. word? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh. And I said, well, I was like, I was like, don't say it. I was like, Negro. They're like, Negro? I was like, I just said, don't say the word. You're going <laughs> to yeah. get in trouble they're, if you keep but saying they're gonna it. Say, right, but they're gonna so say I'm like, it. all right, if you say it and you get in trouble, that's all you. But I'm just telling you what he means. And so I showed right. them. And they were kind of into it for like five seconds. And then they lost interest because I was like, all right, cool. Because it was boring. It was like a boring interview. So I was like, all right. Yeah. And then I just let it go. But just exposing them to that early, I think, is so valuable. Um, so, but yeah. Sorry, we did. This, no, this conversation is. went in a direction I didn't expect it to, but that's no, no, what no. I. It, it is, yeah. and it, it it makes me think about sort of. It's interesting, yeah. Like, 
some of those topics, like I don't even preach with my own kids. Like we, I think we tend to do, we tend to, to really kind of try and shield them from, uh, you know, violence or any of the sort of, you know, ugliness of, of life. And certainly like, and the young one who's, who's not quite five, he just wouldn't understand those things. I think the, the one who's about to be eight certainly would. Um, and I think he understands more than uh, he, I'm sure he understands a lot more than, than we, than we tell him, but, um, but yeah, finding an age appropriate way to communicate those things is, is really, is really tricky. Yeah. And I was almost going to just leave it out, but they were asking so many questions. I was just like, uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain because they were like, he was the president. It's like, that's not not quite accurate, but I understand why they think that. Like he's an important right. figure. Presidents are important figures. And I think right. at some point, probably when I was their age, I probably thought something like that. But I was like, mm-hmm. no, he wasn't the president. He was like, he fought to end slavery. I was like, nah. Not nah. Right. <laughs> not right. It's tough, right? Because, you know, they don't know. They don't have a good sense of, of time and time spans. Um, yeah. You know, like my four-year-old will talk about things <clears throat> as if they were last year when they were yesterday or things that were yesterday as if they were like, you know, last year or something. Um, but it's funny, you know, when you mentioned the, the the use of the term Negro, and maybe this transitions into the topic of the day, right? It is interesting to note how certain language that was sort of common and mainstream at one point, you know, within the lifetime of, you know, certainly my parents, not, not myself, but, you know, that that was sort of mainstream. And then how that language um, all of a sudden became not mainstream and not uh not commonly used and even sometimes um sort of pejoratively offensive, upon, yeah. Right? offensive yeah 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 so that's a that's a great i'm gonna take that segue <laughs> <laughs> i'll take that off ramp uh but no it's it's really good to, to interact with you again uh and and i'm excited to, to transition awkwardly <laughs> into the yeah. topic proper so what we're here to discuss is um what i'm labeling uh, free speech versus hate speech. And there seems to be a very interesting, fascinating, and complicated discourse going on that has been going on actually for quite some time, but is, I guess, resurfaced recently um, and kind of manifested itself in a little bit of different, new, and interesting ways. On the one hand, as I see it, uh, you have a very, very uh, long standing tradition in the United States context specifically of valuing the maximization of enabling people to say what's on their mind, even if that that speech is vile, say or express, because speech is actually generalizable beyond what you say with your mouth. It could be what you express in your art. It could be the content that you post on a social media website. Um, and and these new forms or mediums f- for expression of your of the contents of your heart and mind um have created um new uh vectors uh for if i could put it this way the transmission of reprehensible ideas mm-hmm. and uh those on the other side are i think deeply and seriously concerned uh with the ways with which uh new technologies like social media enable the propagation of reprehensible ideas and the popularization of them to the point where they implicate negatively 
all kinds of people, particularly those who are historically marginalized. And so they're deeply concerned with that vector for the transmission of those kinds of things, which grow into, in their most extreme cases, as established historically, things like what happened in Nazi Germany. Like a big yeah. contributing factor was the speech, the vile yeah. speech that yeah. transmitted the reprehensible white supremacist ideas, um, the anti, the, the anti-Semitic ideas. Yeah. Um, and, and they reached a point of saturation in, in the society in conjunction with a, a, an entire political uh, uh, machine and artifice that was able that was weaponized in, against entire groups of people and their and, and the people who to try to, to shield them. I, I don't think people appreciate the, the, the non-Jewish people who tried to protect Jewish people who were yeah. caught and then uh-huh. they were they, their demise was basically the same as a lot of those the millions of Jewish people yeah, in, right. in, under Nazi Germany right and that's one particular example we can we can replicate that uh, I think in the in the context of the United States with the transatlantic slave trade and the reprehensible white supremacist ideas uh, uh, that 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 held chattel slavery in place and and insisted that my ancestors were the kinds of beings that were uh, l- capable of literally being property to be bought yeah. and sold, uh, picked up and put down as as a as a toy, used as objects. Um, and the brutality that that, that that entailed, the dismemberment, the brutal beatings, the rapes, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. Like all of that is a dark part of that history. And, and a lot of the reprehensible ideas that kept that in place and made that make sense to a, a significant um, segment of the population, even those who just kind of passively accepted it. It's just kind of like normal. It's just kind of like this is what this right. is how it is. Mm-hmm. There, there wasn't really much opportunity to question or perhaps there was. I wouldn't say there was an opportunity. Perhaps there was a lot of opportunity, but a lot of people, in fact, didn't question it in the way that we typically don't question norms. We we, we typically That's just right. go along with norms, even That's reprehensible right. norms we go along with. That's um, right. And so the, I think that there's a very interesting debate here because because then if we recognize that there's a lot of horrible things that can be done with speech on the one hand, which I think is uncontrovertible, but on the other, we have very well-founded deep suspicions about in, in enabling the government that is corruptible to police that, right? Then, 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 w- w- what do we do? Like, like, how do we ensure or minimize the likelihood that the reprehensible ideas get propagated, but at the same time, not enable the government machine to curtail people's speech so much that they're actually now blocking speech under the auspices of protecting people, but really, there's political motivations that are that are corrupted. That why they're doing that. Um, because the uh, part of the uh, initialization of America, d- despite all the horrible things with colonization and things like that, um, was a distrust and a disaffectedness of a, pr- of a prior regime uh, mm-hmm. under a monarchy that had all kinds of, of oppressive strictures on what people could do. And so born out of that was, was a kind of appreciation for the minimalization of the government's power to intrude on the freedoms of individuals, right? And that's yeah. where you get this American freedom and uh-huh. liberty and rugged individualism, right? right? Like that's that's where that comes from. And if you understand how that that history, for better or worse, and it's not it's not a fairy tale, right? But yeah. if you understand that, then you can understand where our free speech tradition comes from and the right. substantive points there. So I don't want to rant too much, but that I think is the landscape of the debate. Um, and, and what I want to challenge you and I to do is to really hone in on that hate speech part because- yeah. I don't think that I did a good job of giving that giving that part of the debate as much voice as I could have, because mm-hmm. I think 
probably I align or, or tilt towards the free speech side of things, though I am willing and able to recognize the valid points on the hate speech side of things. So yeah. I'm going to shut up there and let you let you chime in. No, I mean, gosh, there's so much rich stuff in there. I mean, I think, so let me preface this by saying as well that, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but, uh, you know, just in addition to having sort of general thoughts about this, um, one of my failed entrepreneurial ventures was creating a social media platform. And, um, and so I had to think about these types of things when I thought about, um, you know, how that platform was going to be moderated. Uh, and in fact, um, when I went to go establish a bank account for that uh, company, um, the bank made me articulate and enumerate and, and list out in, in a document um, all of my thoughts about moderation, how content would be policed on the, on the site and, and things like that. So, so I've had to think about these types of things. I think one of the things that you brought up as well, I think is, is interesting. And I, I want to sort of, I don't know, I, I want to sort of pick something out in, in what you said, um, because I think it, it's sort of interesting in the way that you framed it. So I acknowledge that there's like this dynamic tension, right, between the sort of like individual desire to, um, to express versus um, our desire to, uh, you know, protect, protect people, protect individuals and protect classes of people, right? And it may be the case, right, that, that that tension never goes away. I think sometimes these debates are kind of, not debates, we're not having a debate, but these discussions, right, um, or even this sort of broader debate about uh, free speech is, is sometimes framed in the terms of um, sort of reaching a point where that tension no longer exists and maybe part of, um, part of our understanding is that the tension will always exist, that, that we will always be in this dynamic tension where, um, where we're gonna, the pendulum's gonna swing a little bit one way where we sort of let you know, speech out. And then, um, and then we're gonna start to see that that, that speech is having you know, really bad effects and we're gonna then try and pull it back and go back the other way. And then maybe we're gonna get to the point where, you know, where we've constrained speech too much and there's gonna be a backlash. And I think, I think to a certain extent, some of that is normal. Um, although I, I guess I would go a little bit further and say that what we're seeing today to me feels, um, I guess more amplified because I think because of social media and because of the, the mechanisms that people have to express. but. Um, yeah, but it, it, it's definitely a diff difficult topic. And I, I, I'm going to say at the outset that I am probably a bit more left-leaning than, than many of your guests. And so, um, I don't know, I think that may, I don't know, that may or may not, I guess, cloud how I, how I think about this topic. Well, I don't know that it necessarily clouds it. I mean, I think it may. So uh, the, the way I kind of view kind of big picture biases is biases are kind of pro there's pros and cons right so like sometimes when you're biased you're more capable of seeing more clearly certain things uh that your biases favor and you're less capable or blinded to things that your biases are favored against so yeah. to have a bias is not a hundred percent bad um, I, I think in general, we don't like biases because because what we're focused on are the blind spots. Like we don't like to having the blind That's spots. Right. 
but I my philosophy about this is that's precisely why we need to talk to each other because you being more left leaning, like the value of that at least potentially is that you're more better capable. Let's say you're better capable and better able to see things I may not be able to see to whatever extent I diverge from you. Um, I probably am more right leaning than you. I'm not that right leaning, but but relative to you, I probably am. Um, and so whatever, to whatever blind spots that creates for me, then you can help me see things and vice versa. Right. And so, so this, this whole cultural norm of like, we don't talk to people we disagree with, I think is just, it's just a bad idea because it maximizes what we call echo chambers, but, but, but specific, more specifically, it maximizes the opportunity for blind spots to linger. For both yeah. groups of people who are not talking, Pat, they're, they're not, they don't talk to anybody else who doesn't agree with them. Right. Um, right. And it, so it helps sharpen ideas. So that's kind of my big picture philosophy, more substantively to the point that you're making. Like, I do think uh, that there's a lot of complexity in the ways uh, with which this issue, which is an old issue, manifests itself anew with the state of technology and the, the, uh, different abilities that people have to communicate and and broadcast their ideas um back in the you know 1800s where people delivered mail on horseback in that actually slowed the transmission of information in a fundamental way and then you had all of these advancements in communication from the telegraph to the telephone to the cellular phone to the ability to broadcast um, on via radio, to the ability to broadcast images and sound via television, first in black and white, then later in color, and now in super 4K HD. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're moving on to 5K soon. Right, and Um, and one day it'll be holographic, right? You'll be standing in someone's- 77K, (laughs) directly, right into your brain. so yeah, so the but these these um and I've been and I and I am a big fan, although I'm not an expert in by any stretch of imagination, of communication theory and the implications um that modes and methods of communication actually have uh for our society. And and, and yes. I think a lot of people do not appreciate the work of Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman enough, mm-hmm. uh, who are in yeah. many ways were pioneers in this area, mm-hmm. because the insights that they had on the on the on the subtle but profound ways that modes of communication have on society, has really informed my view on how social media impacts society broadly, right. but how the mode of communication germane to social media platforms impacts public discourse in particular. Um, and what, I actually, what do, they, what do they say that the medium is the message? Right? The medium That's is the, the message. Yeah, yeah. yeah that to, to, that that uh, that uh, the, what a profound insight to think of the method by which you communicate as as consisting of the message, mm-hmm. right. right? And 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 the implications of that. Just that I was blown away by. That. I was introduced to this in junior college, actually, community college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took a mass communications theory course. Uh, and I was introduced to Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death and all of the things that he had to say mm-hmm. about how television was impacting society. And I was mm-hmm. blown away by that. I was just like, wow. And so now I'm coming with that lens, you know, with an incomplete understanding because I'm not an expert, but but I think enough of an understanding to to grasp the profound implications. I'm coming with that lens and applying it to social media, which yeah. really is an amalgam of a lot of different things. 
because right. it still has the visual stuff that's germane to television. Um, but it 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 enables a, a kind of newer version of of broadcasting, mass communicating, and the mechanisms including subs, likes, clicks that that maximize eyes and make things go viral at the speed of light. Yeah. To where it and 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 the accessibility because it comes to everybody's phones, yeah. Right, which which now we've progressed to like every, pretty much damn near everybody has a phone. I got six year olds in my class have with cell phones. Like, yeah, my. What are you doing with a cell phone? Yeah, give me that phone. What yes. are you doing? Yes, as a parent, yes, you see that. <laughs> yes. So it's like it's like you know, and 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 TikTok in particular is impacting youth culture in a way that is becoming extremely pernicious and yeah. i don't i don't i don't think a lot of people are as aware of of of, of the dangers of that as they should be and it, yeah. and and a lot of a lot of people who criticize it they latch onto the fact that china is in some sense in the driver's seat with respect to that particular medium but even if it were an american company the the, the kind of damage that could be done would still be there um yeah. because of the of the shaping of minds that that kind of thing enables it's so ubiquitous that it becomes yeah. it becomes it becomes hidden in plain sight yeah. um, and i think a lot of us are unaware of the ways in which we are influenced by these things uh well culturally and socially go ahead yeah no i mean look everything you're saying i spent you know a lot of time thinking about obviously as someone who is trying to wade into that space with their own product um i think I think a couple of things, right? I mean, you, you sort of outlined the, the sort of arc of communication technology over time, but I think what's also interesting over that time is to um, look at the role of uh, what I'll call the gatekeepers, right? Um, so it wasn't the case that everyone had access to printing their own newspaper or, um, or even when, when radio came out or, or television came out, not everyone could go and jump on TV and, and get their own TV show. Um, I mean, there was the advent of, of public access, you know, stuff that came out later. Um, but, but still, I think the medium itself kind of constrained, uh, physically constrained, right, the number of people that could participate in it. You can't have a million channels or whatever, right? And so, um, and so necessarily the people that that controlled the medium and controlled the, the technology of the medium were making decisions, editorial decisions about which voices to to highlight and which ones to to not. Um, yeah. And then there were also certain regulations right around um, you know uh, Saturday mornings you have to show educational stuff. You know the government says that, or um, you know uh, TV used to go off at a certain yes, point. Yes, that's my, right. My, my, my dad off. tells me right. that it used, to, it used to play the American the, the national anthem. The national anthem. I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so um, I was like, Dad, you lie. I don't believe it. <laughs> That's true. Um, uh, I think, God, who is it? Um, this is total non sequitur, but uh, is it Cedric the Entertainer in The Kings of Comedy? Or, or I think it's him. He has a, he has a good, um, good thing about that where it's like, TV used to turn off. It used to stop, you know. Uh, maybe it was him or Bernie Mac. But anyway, um, uh, so, um, so, so I think that's interesting, right? The, the expansion of the number of voices um, that that are allowed by the medium, right? And then I think it's interesting. I, so I, I'm not on TikTok, I, I don't use it, even though I'm sort of aware of, of what's going on. 
but I certainly don't have the connection to its impact on the youth culture because my kids are too young to use it and I'm not on it. And so I, I miss a lot of the, the stuff there. Um, but I think more in terms of the Twitterification of our discourse and how um, the form of forcing people to be very pithy, very grabby in their, um, in their expression and lacking of nuance, um, how that, uh, you know, that medium basically set up an incentive structure that conferred status on certain people. Right. And I think if like if you get into, um, you know, social media and, and, and stuff like that, you know, you start to see that, like, you know, humans are status seeking machines. Right. So we, we are looking for, um, you know, other people to sort of look at us in a favorable light. And then we emulate those that are looked at in a favorable light. And so social media right, with the likes and with the, the number of, you know, followers that you have and all that kind of stuff, it tells us very clearly who are the people with high status. And then we tend to emulate those people. And so if you look at, you know, someone like a Donald Trump on Twitter um, who can put out messages to, you know, 80 million people or whatever um, that lack nuance, that, you know, that, that uh, you know, are, are counterfactual or, you know, if you're being extremely generous, right, are, are, are sort of loose with the facts. Um, but to the extent that he commanded attention on that platform, I think that put out a blueprint for others to, to do the same. And when they started to see success, not just on that platform, but in other uh, areas, whether that was drawing people into podcasts or drawing people onto their own websites, I think that kind of set up this you know, uh, sort of spiral where, where we, um, where the discourse just got more and more, uh, coarse. Right. And I think it's, it's interesting to think about, um, you know, when, when you're making decisions about <clears throat> how to moderate speech, I think it's interesting to think about, um, like what, what voices are you allowing to get really big? And, and then what are the implications of a bunch of people emulating that particular voice in that particular style. Yeah, I mean it's it's but it's but because of the massive scale it's also extremely complicated too. So you do have a maximization of of voices. <clears throat> but part of what becomes to get invented are the parameters for which voices get elevated, right? Because because the because the, social media landscape doesn't amplify all voices equally that's right um, it's mitigated through a bunch of factors which of the voices have the most followers which of the voices tweets get the most likes and reposts which then cycles through like if 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 your if the likelihood that your voice gets elevated depends in any way shape or form algorithmically on likes subs things like that right and subscribers that you have then or that's what i mean by subs then like certain voices are more likely to be elevated consistently than other voices, right? If I only have yeah. five followers on Twitter, which I think I have something like 30 followers on Twitter, because I joined Twitter like last year. <laughs> okay. Because um, I refused to join Twitter at first. And, and you know what's funny? The reason why I joined Twitter, I was advised to join Twitter because I was starting a podcast and mm -hmm. it was a it was instrumental in drawing eyes to the podcast mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to get on social media and do, and do the thing. And I didn't like what I what i believed it would do to me 
and I'm still so deeply suspicious of Twitter for this reason, uh. is I already have inclinations towards engaging in the toxic ways of social media, uh, particularly when it comes to political topics that yeah. are that 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 I that I actually genuinely detest and argue against. Yeah. And there's some there's a deeply there's a deep moral issue I have with that because I, I know my inclinations are I'm inclined towards doing a thing that I would criticize in other people yeah. and it would criticize in myself. And the first few weeks on Twitter, I was doing it. I was like finding these people who are famous and I was giving them a piece of my mind, like here, AOC, mm, I disagree with you. Or, <laughs> or 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 whoever it was, right? Inter politician yeah. here. Yeah. And it's like, hmm, yeah, you got owned because of my little pithy tweet that makes you look dumb. And this is like this yeah. sense of like self-gratification that I got from do like mm, I I got you. And I yeah. and I, I kind of had to take a step up. I was like, this is not healthy. And this is the no. kind of thing that like I think a lot of people are naturally inclined towards. Cause all of a sudden you have access, kind of quasi access to like really famous people. That's <laughs> that's see, that's key, right? And I think that is the um that is the, the, the magic of Twitter, and that is also the danger of Twitter, right? Is that um, I remember when I got on, um, you know, the, a friend was sort of recommending it to me. Um, this was a number of years ago, but I think it was sort of like, um, it would have been like 2015 or something like that is when I really started to get on it. Um, you know, so I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. I know that you're a nerd in, in, in some areas, right? Uh, or a geek, I guess we should say, in some areas, right, with uh, comic books and stuff. For, I, prefer, for I prefer blurred. <laughs> blurred. There you go. There you go. So, so me, you know, my, my, my fandom is, is, is Star Trek. And, uh, you know, those folks, a lot of the actors, right, are um, sort of famous in that domain, but not so famous that you couldn't, like, tweet them and get them to respond or get them to, like, uh, your 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 tweet, and when I first got on Twitter, I was you know doing that, and it was so exciting to say like, oh my god, like this person who who I loved you know on this TV show has you know liked my tweet or something like that, and so that that feeling of access is really powerful. But then, like you said, there is that that you know double edged sword to it, which is that when you're tweeting out to the politicians that you don't like, and look, I mean, I I you know had dreams of like you know. Uh, you know, trolling Donald Trump and, you know, like I'm sure a lot of folks did, right? And and trying to, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever the, the effects of that trolling would be. I think that a lot of people, you know, uh, uh, try and do that on social media. And, and that is because you think that you can reach that person, but you don't understand that the scale of the, you know, the number of people trying to do that means that they really don't hear anything, right? And so then, yeah, we're being our worst selves. Um, and I'll, I'll, you know, say as well, like I, I recently got off of Twitter. Um, we can talk more about that, but I got off of Twitter when, when Elon took over. Um, but, you know, even things like, you know, as you're typing and you're getting close to that 280 character limit and you're like, oh, well, I really can't expound on this point anymore because the system is telling me I have to like wrap it up. You know, I got to So, so instead of like trying to like, you know, uh, continue the nuance into the next tweet or whatever. I'll just kind of like delete some words, make it less nuanced, you know, make it more pithy and then send it off. But a lot of times that's exactly when you get something that is, you know, um, it, it's just lacking nuance and, and 
and doesn't further the conversation. And then if you add on top of that, that you may already be triggered because, you know, what you're responding to is something that you didn't agree with, um, uh, you know, then, then that's when the vitriol, you know, creeps in and all that kind of stuff. And because you were um, dealing with a computer, right? So it's computer mediated communication because you're not dealing with a person like you would on Clubhouse, for instance, um, I think it's even easier to go that much further. And so we're really just interacting with people, not even people, we're interacting with objects in the abstract that just happen to be generating content that we don't agree with necessarily. And it's easy for us to be our worst selves when, when pushing back without recognizing that we're talking to people. That's interesting. I I would I don't want to abandon the claim that we're interacting with people. I think that that but there definitely needs to be qualifications. We are interacting with people. I, I mean, I, th I think I think but we, we are feel like we we, we feel like we don't inter that we're not interacting with people, and I think that allows us to be kind of our worst selves. And I think that's I think. Well, yeah, no. I, my my pushback isn't really so much to disagree, but to but to make what you said that I actually fundamentally agree with more. Um accurate nuanced in in, yeah. in, in in taking into account nuance. we're interacting with people in the sense that <clears throat> all of the people who are interacting and communicating with each other via this medium it, like it starts with a person they go on their phone or their laptop or whatever that enables them to communicate via this medium and they send messages they receive messages they respond to them and it's at will what they what they respond to what's not at will is what they see and when mm. because mm. there's mitigated through a whole bunch of things that are algorithmically manipulated and not necessarily nefariously yeah. but to the benefit and in the interest of the company that 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 has created the platform so for example it turns out that maximizing the value of a platform such as twitter is contingent upon maximizing engagement and interactions from people. And 100%. it also turns out that a fun fact of mass psychology is that one of the one of the most effective, consistently effective ways to maximize people engaging is to piss them off. Because we are our our attention, we're wired in such a way generally where our attention goes to things that outrage us or piss us off or or make us feel appalled or disgusted even. There's yeah. something about our psychology that makes that the case. And if you know that and you're and you have all of these, call them perverse if you want to, but economic incentives to maximize eyes on your platform, then designing your algorithms in such a way that it bolsters the things that's pissing people off and effectively yeah. gamifying outrage creates yeah. a whole bunch of incentive structure. Not only it's not only built into the system in terms of like the algorithms, but it's built into the the incentive structure of the users who interface yeah. with it. So now, as a user, I uh -huh. derive all kinds of social status, all That's kinds it. of likes and clicks and subs and attention from being the kind of person who outrage mongers. That's right. right. Like, and so, yeah. and so, the it, troll is now elevated in this in this ecosystem to a higher status because they're effectively able. And so, then you get a person like Donald Trump. Um, part of what contributes to his appeal is his willingness to engage in ways that piss off a whole bunch of people from a certain ideological faction to right. the to the self-aggrandizement of himself and the people who agree with him. Right. right. So, so, yeah, go ahead. so Sorry. 
No, no, no. I, I mean, I like everything you're saying. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Right. Because I think, you know, so they call it enragement engagement. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think uh, Scott Galloway uh, talks about this a lot. Um, you know, he's a professor. Uh, he's on the Pivot podcast and he does a lot of other media stuff. Anytime um, you have an asset transformed or refined into something more valuable, whether it's oil out of the ground into petroleum or attention into money, there are externalities, there's emissions. And we're finding that the longer you let the externalities go, the more expensive they are to unwind. When you take people's attention and use it as a means of serving them ads, what ultimately happens is the way to scale that is through algorithms. And the algorithms aren't malicious and they're not really what you call benign, they're just totally indifferent. And what they find is that if I can enrage you, you're more likely to come back and be on the platform longer. Enragement equals engagement. So the algorithms take content that's likely to enrage us and promote it and give it more sunlight. Unfortunately, there's an economic incentive around turning us into Tyrannosaurus Rexes where we're drawn towards movement and violence rather than having a civil conversation. Um, and so I think this is really interesting, right? And, you know, one of the things that, that was really important to me when I was doing my own social media uh, uh, platform was specifically to change the economic model, right? And I think that for me was the key element because if your model uh, involves, um, you know, getting people to continue to scroll, right? So that you can put more ads in front of them and the more ads you put in front of them, the more revenue you generate, then, then yes, then your algorithms will naturally pick up, um, you know, enraging content. And, and amplify that, right? And I should also say, it's, as a matter of background, I worked on personalization algorithms at Netflix, and so I, you know, so I have some some insight into how these you know algorithms work, and and you know that their their effect can be different than than what um, than what their intent was. But but in any case, um, you know, one of the insights I had for my platform was change to a subscription model, right? So that people are charging. Um, or sorry, we're charging people, you know, uh, a fixed amount every month. And therefore, the incentive is to drive value, understanding, um, you know, all these other things, right? You can make all these other choices. You, you don't have to, but you can make those other choices um, if your economic model doesn't involve, um, you know, enraging people to, to continue to engage them. And so, and so to that extent, like of all of the stuff that Elon Musk is doing at Twitter that I, you know, that, that I question, the, his focus on subscription, I think, is, is one thing that, that, is, uh, that I would agree with. Fair enough. Uh, but, it, but, but he does engage in the same kind of... He does the same thing because, like, yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, his whole Twitter false thing is, is actually aimed in a way to maximize engagement from outrage. That's 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 what that's it, it is. Now, it doesn't mean that there's no legitimacy to it. I think that there are certain things that we should legitimately be outraged by. I mean, to whatever extent the government is 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 leveraging private companies to silence the speech of political rivals. And that involves corruption. We should be appalled by that. I, I, I don't think I don't, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you are. If that's weaponized against you, I think it's easy to understand why that's a problem. So even if it's weaponized against your enemies, I think on some level you can recognize like, yeah, it's probably a road we don't want to go down. Um, 
So I'm, I'm trying to Although, be neutral politically with it, but I think that there's a fair criticism there. But the way that he's doing it is, is, it seems like it's less about revealing the bad thing and it's more about maximizing engagement on his platform that he now owns because there's all kinds of economic incentives for him to do that. Yeah, he, he's, he's, he's a smart guy. He, he, he knows what he's doing in that respect. But let, let, me, let, me, let me poke on this because this may be an area where, where we disagree a little bit. So I'll admit, like I haven't, because I've not been on Twitter, I haven't followed the whole thing about sort of the quote unquote Twitter files or, or whatever. But I, it, I guess here's the thing, right? To me, um, one, I, I don't know that I've, I've seen or heard sort of compelling evidence that the government was kind of, you know, weaponizing, uh, you know, uh, Twitter in some way to like, you know, uh, Keep certain voices off. Although I think we we know that that that's happened. You know, for instance, after um, or I guess you know, with the rise of ISIS and all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, coinciding with social media and how they were using YouTube and and Twitter and stuff to recruit people, Facebook, whatever. Um, you know, the government kind of came in and said, no, 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 like you have to you know tamp that down. And I think we all kind of generally agreed with that, right? I mean, even people who were free speech advocates said, hey, like you know, beheading videos are sort of a, you know, a, a bridge too far, right? And like, we, we got to pull this back. Um, and so I think to a certain extent, like we, we all sort of um, have our line where, where we think that's, that should be the case. But it's not clear to me that, that that's happened recently. And I think even the, the kind of stuff that, you know, that, that Elon is, has sort of released um, about the internal debates at Twitter about you know, whether the hunter biden story should run or whatever to me that just kind of shows you know people being really thoughtful about you know what should be on the platform and 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 being really conflicted and sort of going back and forth and and yeah there were people i think from the government you know sort of advocating both sides you know that were like um they were giving their opinions to twitter but not giving directives to twitter right um and then i would also say that even though say Twitter made a decision to limit the reach of that story, that story still had legs off the platform. And I do find it interesting sometimes how much our discussions about free speech get sort of, you know, uh, boiled down to like, well, how much, you know, how much uh, amplification or, or how much distribution did it get on Twitter, right? As if just because Twitter is sort of like, you know, the, the big, you know, uh, like, you know, gorilla in the space of, of, of discourse and distribution, we somehow think that if you don't have distribution there, that somehow your free speech is being limited. Um, but of course, you know, people had free speech long before Twitter, right? So anyway, there, there's, there's a lot there to, to, to dig into, but, but I do find that kind of interesting. Um, I want to, I want to introduce a concept that I think is going to be germane to a point that I want to use to kind of uh, challenge you a little bit. Yeah, um, please. I, I do think that you've latched onto something that we disagree on, um, but I don't know that the disagreement is all that vehement. Um, have you ever heard of the concept of jawboning? I've heard the term, but please ex ex expound. Yeah, that. so I'm gonna I'm gonna use this source to kind of explain it um, because it's a term that I just discovered just a couple weeks ago. So I'm I'm uh, by no stretch of the imagination an expert on it, but basically it gets at this idea. <clears throat> that um, uh, a, a person or an entity that has official authority 
can use informal forms of coercion to prompt either another entity or a person into doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is this is the the kind of scandal is maximized when this kind of thing is done, where the person in a position of power should not be coercing anybody to do X Y Z, but they're they're informally doing it, like not officially, but it's like usually kind of implied nudge nudge wink wink, like hey, are you gonna do X Y and Z? Yeah. Because because like if you don't, well, I don't know what's gonna happen to you. Right or like whatever, right, like this, right, right. It's like sure, implied sure. threat, yep. right? It's like no, no official. Like in my official capacity as such and such, I'm declaring that you must do X. It's more like, hey, if you know what's good for you. <laughs> right, um, right. And so what people are saying is that the government was involved in something like this uh, via the FBI and Twitter. Um, when it comes to nudge, nudge, wink, wink, hey, take a look at that Hunter Biden laptop. It'd be a shame if it fucked up the election. This is not an official declaration from the FBI, but we're just saying, or like, hey, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, we have good reason to believe that Russian bots are like affecting things. It'd be a shame if Donald Trump won. Okay, we're just putting this on your radar, right? And like, some people are making the accusation that that this kind of thing actually is more pernicious than it seems. I, I would say the analogy. So this is coming mostly from the right in the context of Twitter and the Twitter files. I would say a rough analogy would be, I think, the ways with which people on the left tend to talk about dog whistling, which is they're like, look, we live in an environment where it's not really cool for people to be overtly racist or white supremacist. And so what they do is they rely on less overt tactics to to accomplish effectively the same outcomes, right? And so, and you can get really conspiratorial with that, but there's some substance to that. I do think that in general, we could probably correctly identify occasions where people are actually dog whistling. They're actually kind of hint, yeah. hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, signaling some very pernicious shit to people that they don't they don't want people to get wind of because our society is 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 in such a way where we would probably stop that shit if it was overt. Um, yeah. And I think that people from the right are making a similar or an anal- a roughly analogous accusation when it comes to the Twitter files. And I think that it has as much validity um, because... Yeah. Number one, and maybe this is maybe this is a bias of mine. I don't really trust the FBI or any kind of agency like that because their history of various forms of like fucked up shit that they've done to my community and elsewhere around the world uh, with the CIA, the FBI, and all those alphabet agencies. They've done a lot of fucked up shit that's like common knowledge at this point. But at the time, it was covered up. It was, it was like no, it was just you know, we're just we're just handling things, you know, like they're yeah. like COINTEL, Co- Co- like yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So like, I actually think that there's something. It's like I'm not. I'm not the kind of person to leap with two feet into a conspiracy theory, but I do listen to conspiracy theories because a lot of times within them are some points of validity. And I would, I'm, I'm milk toast enough to be like, my, my eyebrows raised and my ears perked. And now I want to pay attention more. Like, I don't know what's true and what's not true, but I want to pay attention more. And I feel that way, both with the dog whistling thing and with this, what do you think about that? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think from a meta perspective, it I means difficult to, to find something to disagree with in that. But I think that um, in this particular case, right, my understanding, and again, I'm not an expert here, nor if I sort of, you know, uh, looked at all the stuff that, that Elon has put out. But my understanding is that the, the warnings from the FBI were quite general, right, that um, that all social media platforms should be on the lookout for operations that 
have a certain, you know, uh, certain outline or, or certain profile. And I think that that was, um, I think that that was justified in the context of what was happening with WikiLeaks in 2016, right? That, um, that, that we knew, we knew post hoc, right, through, you know, all kinds of investigations and whatnot, that uh, the Russians were, you know, the Russians had hacked, you know, the DNC, they'd hacked, you know, John Podesta, they were using WikiLeaks as a, uh, as a cutout to, to weaponize that information and to impact the election. Um, and in particular, right, in, you know, when the Access Hollywood tapes came out, you know, with Donald Trump, you know, that night, a trove of, of uh, things were released about Hillary Clinton from WikiLeaks. And so there was a lot of like manipulation of the media and therefore the election uh, as that was happening, uh, sorry, in 2016. And I think then uh, as we got closer to 2020, the election, um, I think the, the national security apparatus w- was correct to say to these platforms, be on the lookout for your platform being manipulated, you know, by these, uh, you know, in these, these ways. Right. And so, and so I think the general, you know, guidance to them was correct. And then in particular for this story, I think what's interesting is, you know, and maybe this gets, I don't know, maybe a little bit more into the sausage making of, of journalism, but, you know, you have the people that released the story or wrote the story in the New York post, uh, taking their names off of the byline, you had other journalists not able to access the source material, you know, that was cited in the, you know, in the story. And so they couldn't independently verify, you know, some of the claims that were being made. And so, you know, it started to smell, right? It had this, this, this sort of aura about it um, that it could be an operation because it was happening in October, so close to the election. And so, and so I think that while it's difficult, um, it's always a difficult decision, right? To, 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 you know, as a platform to determine, you know, like how much amplification something should get. I think that given that background and given that context, I think the decision that they made initially to limit its distribution um, made sense, right? Until it could be sort of verified, you know, by other journalists uh, independently. Yeah. So I don't, I, I have no problem acknowledge. I think I'm cool headed enough to acknowledge um, that I think in general, broadly speaking, there do seem to be good reasons for agencies like the FBI to um, want to bring to the attention of privately run companies like Twitter and Facebook, et cetera, um, the extent to which their platform can be leveraged in ways that actually are a legitimate threat to national security um, or have other wider negative social implications that the those those agencies are germane to addressing or protecting or avoiding um <clears throat> that i think is where a lot of the conspiracy theorists fail they they fail to recognize the uh plausibleness that there may be good reasons for some of the steps that the fbi has taken um and they jump in with two feet on the accusation that they're up to no good. However, like I also recognize the plausibility that because the areas are gray and it's not really clear where the lines are, that there there may have even even if it was unintentional, if it's inadvertent, there may have been a line cross 
that we don't want the FBI or other agencies like that to be crossing in terms of overstepping their bounds when it comes to influencing social media companies with great power and great political influence to potentially impact the outcome of elections in ways that they ought not have done because they ought not have intervened uh, because because they only intervened because of the threat of something that actually wasn't going to happen anyway. Um, and like, I think yeah. that, that 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 room to talk about that area of this is where I think there's the real substance. And you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to talk about that in the same way. And I love this analogy because I think a lot of leftists genuinely agree, like see this. Like there's going to be situations where it makes sense. The dog whistling thing is like, it, it makes sense to be like, actually the thing that the person said is actually rather innocuous. And like what they were trying to convey wasn't really racist although if you if you interpret their words a certain way you can maybe gain that implication right i actually defend tucker carlson on this basis all the time i'm like i don't i don't think that a lot of the things that he says are dog whistly in the way that he's accused however right. i would i would i would also say that there are some things that tucker carlson says that i'm like given his audience and given given the fact that fox news knows their audience I don't think it's an accident that he's wording things in those ways because I think there is an like there is a deliberate intentional attempt to appeal yeah. to the ways in which the audience members think even uh, if Tucker 100%. Carlson himself doesn't fully agree with it um and it may not even be Tucker Carlson's doing I he to whatever extent he reads from a teleprompter and the teleprompter and the people who made the decision to put the wording like that who who orchestrated the teleprompter right like like it may be a function of that, and he's a, he's the mouthpiece for it, but he's not really using his own words. That's going to have implications for me that I take very seriously about to what extent he's culpable. I'm not saying he's not culpable. I'm just saying I would tailor his culpability to a certain extent. But like, yeah, he might be saying some things that are very dog whistly in their intent. They may not be his intent. It may be the intent of whoever's orchestrate, whoever's behind Fox News, whoever orchestrated the teleprompter, etc. Because what they're really trying to do is maximize their audience or tailor themselves to a specific uh, uh, electorate. And and among those people are the kinds of people who would read that negative thing into there. So that complicates things a little bit. Um, and it makes it hard to evaluate that morally. I, or I should say it makes it more complicated to evaluate that morally for me. But I would I would say I don't condone that kind of thing to whatever extent that's happening. And I can acknowledge that that's, not, that's a bad thing. But what I'm really afraid of is people getting loose with the, with the baseless accusations of dog whistling. And by analogy, people... You could argue people getting loose with the baseless accusations that the government is up to no good whenever they do anything that influences or impacts the decisions of companies to censor anything. Like like the government is trying like I don't I don't I feel like I, I try to deal with these the same way because I feel like that's a good method. Like you don't want to go too far in either extreme. But what do you think? Yeah, I mean, one I would say you're you're way more generous to Tucker Carlson, <laughs> Tucker Carlson than I would be. I, I think I think he does know exactly what he's what he's doing, and I think he is appealing specifically to to um, to to a very specific uh, electorate. Um, yeah. So so yeah. I mean, look. I think again. I think I haven't. I don't know the details, right? But in particular for the Hunter Biden thing. I don't know that the FBI weighed in on that particular story when it came out as much as the FBI had weighed in generally, right, to all the companies 
you know, as the election season was approaching to say, be on the lookout for stuff that looks like this, right? That has these contours, right? A weaponized story that, you know, that is from a dubious source or, you know, it hasn't been verified or, you know, and is salacious or, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so, and so, so that I think like if, if, you know, if, if Christopher Ray had called up, you know, I don't know, Jack Dorsey or something and said, gee, you know, it's a nice platform you got there. It'd be, you know, a shame if something happened to it. Uh, and now about this Hunter Biden thing, like, like that, you know, that, that would be really concerning. Um, but, but my understanding is, is that that, that just didn't happen. You don't, you, well, do you, are you familiar with, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's appearance on Joe Rogan, where he actually kind of like basically admitted that the, the FBI, uh, basically told them to censor or derank algorithmically that story. So, so I, I, if if you've got the quote, it, it would be good to pull up. My my recollection of that quote was that he had said that the FBI had talked to Facebook in general about things like that, but not that particular story. And that the conversation that the FBI had with them happened before that story came out. But again, I could be I could be wrong on that. I think I think not only did he admit that he, that the FBI like informed them that they needed to like derank this or whatever, but like he he admitted that they were wrong to do so. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, but I, I'm, so, I'm looking for the video right now, though. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I just I I know that that I know that people on the right sort of made hay about it when it came out, and I recall listening to the quote or to the to the clip. And and thinking, oh no, like this this makes total sense. Like the FBI, of course, would be warning all the social media websites that that they could be weaponized in in some way uh, during the election. And and I think that, and I think you know, and this gets I think back to the the broader point. And it's interesting. We've spent a lot of time on social media. I didn't know that conversation was going to go this way, but um, but I think that it's also interesting. You know, at the time. Um, uh, was it? Yeah, I guess it was then. Is that right? Yeah, right. Okay, so, so in 2020, yeah, I was I was also on Parler, right? And so you know, so Parler was sort of like the very right wing, you know, Twitter clone or or whatever. And um, and I think what's interesting is that even if you did have you know, I'm not saying this did happen, but like, even if the FBI sort of did lean on Twitter or whatever, right, you still had many other platforms like Parler, like Getter, um, you know, maybe even Clubhouse, whatever, right, where these conversations were happening. And so, you know, I know like Sasha Baron Cohen has, you know, used this term that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach, but it's, it is interesting, right, to think about, um, you know, if you're limiting the reach of certain things, are you also limiting its speech? Right? I think limiting the reach kind of necessarily needs to be understood as a limitation on speech in some sorts. I mean, the, the point is to limit it because the speech is the vehicle for the propagation of the bad ideas, right? It is, but it is. And I think, I think there's sort of extreme ends, right? I mean, I think the most extreme end is you limit the speech to 
the person talking in their in their own room, you know, their own four walls by themselves, right? So like you, you say, hey, like you, you can say anything you want just in this jail cell where no one can hear you, right? So like that, that is like, like an extreme limitation of speech, right? But I think that, that somewhere in, in the middle on that spectrum is, you know, you have the right to, to say something, but perhaps not here, right? Perhaps not on this private property, um, you know, perhaps not in my backyard. Um, you know, perhaps you have to go to the, to the park and get your soapbox and stand up there, right? And, and, and talk and say what you need to say. And, and that's, you know, that's where you can speak. And so like you have free speech, but you don't have the right to a printing press that will give distribution to your idea to millions of people. Right? Um, yeah, I mean, but I will concede the point that the government making those decisions is problematic. I, 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 will, I will concede that because, yeah. because obviously the government has its own, uh, you know, incentive structure, right? Um, yeah. and, and so that, that is problematic. Um, again, I guess I'm saying in this particular case, I don't know that that's what happened. I mean, there's plausible deniability, but I, I don't, I, don't I, I think what I'm really trying to get in is that there's also like what plausible affirmability, right? So like, it, it really doesn't settle the question of what actually took place. And part of it is like, it's not really clear where the lines are. Like, like, like if the FBI traversed across the line, they did it barely. And part of the reason why they would do that is because if they did it overtly, and this is why I keep using the analogy with dog whistling, because it has that same kind of dynamic. I think that it would be the, the objection to that would be vehement. If they were bold and in your face, like, yeah, we censored them. And what? Then it'd be like, oh, well, there's no doubt here anymore. And now, like, they've done the thing we all know is bad. The government shouldn't be doing that. Right. And I think that dog whistling has the same kind of dynamic. It's like, well, you have overt, you have, or excuse me, you have like covert racists that exist, mostly because our society is not very accepting of them broadly speaking so they are forced to to adopt covert tactics because they're they're gonna get stopped or they're very likely to be stopped or confronted if they're overt with it and so i think that that dynamic makes it really difficult to settle the question and and in both instances but i, I know we're talking about the fbi and that, and so my stance is I actually think that this is a very serious thing. And I, I remain neutral on whether or not the FBI is actually guilty because I just don't know. But I actually am suspicious because there's a whole bunch of incentives that make it really plausible that the FBI did act in this way, in a very partisan way. And you have, you know, what people submit as evidence is like the difference in treatment of the way that the the, the FBI went after Trump over the the um, top secret documents or whatever versus the way they're treating Biden right now. Like some people say, well, that seems like a market difference that belies a certain kind of partisanship in the agency. And there's all kinds uh, of reasons why this, this is an argument. There's all kinds yeah, of reasons yeah. why a lot of people argue that the agency in general does not like Donald Trump, particularly because Donald Trump did a lot of shit that pissed off the agency while he was president. Um, that's, and it, that's just a, an argument. It could be wrong. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's a view. And, yeah, and 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 let me let me poke on that a little bit, right? So so one I would say, you know, to, I guess 
okay, let, let me say two things about this, right? So one is that, you know, Christopher Ray, the, the head of FBI is a Republican. And, and I think, you know, I always kind of chuckle when, when, when people, some people on the right kind of, you know, uh, pose it like, like a bunch of liberals, you know, uh, inhabit uh, law enforcement. I mean, like that, that, that notion, no, that's, that, that's, that idea, yeah, or, yeah, or even, but, or even but a lot of Republicans don't like Trump either. So it's not, sure, it's not that, a Republican versus Democrat thing per se. That, that's that's true, but but I guess it, it is still a little bit weird that sort of like all the never Trumpers kind of you know coalesced in the FBI. But but here but here's what I would say on a on a deeper level, which is that I think what is pernicious about that sort of line of reasoning is the notion that people cannot act professionally, that they have to act in a partisan way, right? And and that. And that someone's party uh, or, or partisan alignment or even ideological alignment takes precedence over their professional responsibilities. And I would think and hope that regardless of the party of the FBI agent or the agents generally in the FBI, that they would be able to, to follow the law, um, uh, at, at, you know, without uh, they call it without fear or favor, right? Um, that that would be their, their sort of standard. Now, to the to the the point about the the sort of you know the, the documents and, and the, the classified stuff. Um, yeah, I, I would say that that like you know the the details matter, right? Where you know Nara contacted you know Trump and his folks and said, hey, we think you had these documents. He said, you know, I don't think I have them. Blah blah blah. They went back and forth. He returned 15 boxes. They said, we still think that you have more documents. He said, no, we don't have them. He was subpoenaed for the documents. He resisted the subpoena, right? Finally, the FBI, after months and months of negotiation, you know, had to go out there and then seized a bunch more documents. Um, so that is that is one thing, right, where, and then even after the FBI seized documents, that, you know, the Trump folks did another search and found even more documents, right? And so, and so I think that that is like, that detail matters. And then in the case of, of Biden, uh, they keep on tripping over documents, yes, but uh, but there was no subpoena, right? There was no sort of back and forth. No one, they, you know, found the documents and then alerted NARA as opposed to the other way around. And so I think that, I think that I'm not trying to minimize the, you know, the, the sort of, um, you know, damage that can come from uh, classified documents, you know, not being in secure locations. I think that it's absolutely serious. I think that, you know, that that should be, uh, you know, by be fully investigated uh, for for the implications there. But I think that because of the back and forth nature, because of the subpoena, because of the resistance, you know, that, that Trump showed, I think that 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 kind of whether whether he was trying to hide something or whether he legitimately believed that those documents belonged to him. I think that kind of behavior, most um, you know, kind of uh, mainstream people would look at that and say, oh, "Gosh, it really feels like you know you're trying to cover something up, right? That you're trying to hide something. That you have this many documents, and that they tried to get them back from you, and that you resisted, and then and then you sort of lied about you know having done a search and right, blah blah blah." Versus the guy that says, "Oh my gosh, like oh I found these documents. Here you go, right? I'm going to call you. I'm going to tell you that I found these documents." <clears throat> Well, I do acknowledge that nuance, but I, I do find it interesting that I feel like you left some nuances out and maybe, maybe I don't know that you did it nefariously or anything like that, yeah. but maybe you just don't know. And yeah. if that's the case, then it, then 
uh, my criticism would then go to the reporting on this uh, because I don't think that the different outlets report this objectively. I think that they report this in very biased ways. So one of the things that I, it's, I think is interesting to note is that apparently, uh, reportedly, um, the Biden campaign was made aware that they had these documents of before the election and it didn't become public until now. And so when it comes to that that idea of like, it feels like they're trying to cover it up, a lot of people right of center feel that way about that particular detail. They feel like, well, why did you wait until after the election to reveal this? And also, why did you wait until after Trump got raided and Trump got lambasted in the news for his his having secret documents and then make all these public statements about about how, how Trump you know, it should be ashamed of himself or whatever Biden said. I don't know exactly what Biden said. So don't, so take my, my, if I misquoted him, I apologize. I'm not yeah. trying to, but he said, he said something to the effect. He basically criticized publicly. I think via tweets. Yeah, or whatever. It, it, he said it was, it was, it was careless. It and, was careless and irresponsible, yeah. but it's like, yeah. but if you, but if, but if your people knew that you did this before the election, well, like, like, why are you, why are you lambasting this man? And it's like, if you want to stand on the virtue, whatever comparative virtue it uh, you can gain, from pointing out that Trump was not as cooperative as you and you were way more cooperative, that's fine. I'll give you I'll give you points for that, but I'm I'm gonna take away points for the other stuff. And then and then also it's like like it doesn't seem like there's, there's the same energy behind the investigation with Biden. And if you're saying that the justification for that is because Biden's cooperative, it's like, okay, maybe, but like I don't feel like Biden's gonna get his home raided anytime soon. I don't think that's gonna be a part of the investigation. Right, and, and 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 but the reason why that won't happen is pre- is precisely because as soon as they find the documents that day, they call up Nara and they say we got the documents, right? And I think there's a difference between Nara saying, you know, to the Justice Department or whatever, like we we really strongly believe he has these documents, but he's just not giving them back to us, and you know, you need to subpoena them, and then we subpoena them, and then you know. Is it Jay Brad or whatever goes down to Mar-a-Lago and then says, "Hey, do you have the documents here? And can I go look at them?" And no, 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 you can't look in that storage closet. Blah blah blah. Right? Like all those things matter. Now, to your to your point, my understanding again, you know, not having done a super deep dive on this, is that it was November second when the first batch of of uh, documents were found. Uh, yeah, that was right before the election. That was long after sort of you know the August raid at, at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and so is the release, like, again, my understanding is that day, November 2nd, they called NARA and they said, we have these documents and gave them back. So that's good. They didn't like sit on the documents and wait to notify NARA until after, until now, right? So it was, it was about the timing of the media story. Now, is the timing of when the media story came out, um, I'm not even gonna use the word suspect, but it, was it intentional? Absolutely. Right. I absolutely believe that, that, that there was a conversation one had, and maybe a correct conversation, right, that someone had uh, that said, look, it's so close to the election, right? Just like the Department of Justice doesn't release, you know, uh, or, you know, the, the whole thing that Comey got in trouble with, about, you know, sort of uh, talking about the, the, the Hillary's mails, right, just before the election. <laughs> right and got him fired right or uh-huh. presumably got him fired yeah didn't really get him fired anyway but but like that whole thing was against just a uh, doj policy right and it may well be the case that someone had a conversation and said look we found the documents you know blah 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 we returned them to nara you know let's hold off 
until after the election, until after the dust is settled, and then and then all this information can come out, right? Uh-huh. And and yeah, I mean, I, I I get how like that that might seem unseemly, but it's also not the same as we have the documents. Let's hold on and be silent about having the documents until after the election. If that makes sense. I mean, maybe I, I guess what I'm what I'm really trying to demonstrate is there's plausible deniability, but there's also plausible affirmability, which is I think a term I just invented, right? So like, <laughs> I don't know what happened, for sure. I just I just understand from the point of view of those right of center why they would be equally suspicious of Joe Biden, who they already don't like, in an analogous way to which people who are not willing to give Trump the benefit of the doubt because they basically view him as inherently corrupt. Um, like a Whoopi Goldberg who commented on this recently on the view, <laughs> like or 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 uh, Joe Behar, like like I I give Biden. I mean, she, she Joe Behar said the quiet part out loud. Like I give Biden the benefit of the doubt because Biden is not corrupt in the same way Trump is. That's that was her view, and a lot of Americans feel that way, and a lot of Americans yeah. feel that same way in reverse about Biden. And I think that like the naked partisanship of that, her partisanness of that is like what's coloring the discourse on this. And I'm trying to distance myself from that kind of partisanship because I don't think it's objective. And I'm trying to be objective, right? And I'm trying to keep track of all the valid points you're making and all the valid points people are making on the other side with Trump. And and I'm actually gonna do a clubhouse room later today that's comparing these things. So this is actually kind of like practice for that room. But like, I just think it's a fascinating thing because I do think that there's a lot of hypocrisy on people on both sides because they're really just narrowly focused on the on the on the rival party's person doing the bad thing um and the way it went down is like first it was trump that did the bad thing and then it's like biden's kind of like now marred in a quasi scandal kind of about doing something very similar and it's like aha y'all were projecting from the point of view of the right because like like your guy did the thing that you guys just lambasted this guy for and he's our guy and like i do see hypocrisy on that side but I also see hypocrisy on the right because it's like y'all are so busy trying to call out hypocrisy that you got y'all are not like <laughs> admitting like, but like Trump, what Trump did is <laughs> like that's not cool. Like we need we like right. like there, there's a, there's like an objective basis on which to like be concerned about like right. secret documents if, if like not being out. Yeah, if, it's, if it's wrong, yeah, if it's wrong, it's wrong, right? Yeah, and and, and so yeah, and so that there's sort of that lack of acknowledgement, and then also. Yeah. I guess we're we're sort of now a little bit far afield of of free speech, but you know, you know, there are other factors, right, that people look at, like like when Joy Behar says this, right, like, um, you know, you have the Trump Organization, you know, convicted of you know whatever you know, fraud tax it is, fraud. It was right, tax fraud, right? You've got you know the the you know Trump himself and his kids are not legally. Uh, allowed to to run a charity because they were you know stealing from their last one. You have the guy you know impeached for you know presumably leaning on on Ukraine to to dig up dirt on his rival and right. So I think I think that there, there's a broader context in which people say, oh yeah, like I've got a lot of data points to sort of suggest that you know that that um, that Donald Trump people is, on the right replicate people on the right Biden. They do, but but I think it's also sort of interesting that like it, you know, it's sort of unfortunate, right? That that we're in our political discourse that we're in a place where we can, you know, unlike two thousand eight, you know, when McCain uh, defended Obama, right? When that lady said, "Oh, I think he's a secret Muslim," and blah blah blah, you know, and, and McCain, you know, said to the the lady at his own town hall, like, "No, like." 
you know, like he's a good man. He's an upstanding, decent person, blah, blah, blah. We disagree vehemently about a lot of things, but he's a good person, right? And, and whatever. And I would say that that continued on to the, the Ronnie, you know, um, uh, era or, or election. Um, but now, right, we're in this Both of those figures lost. <laughs> Both of those figures lost. That is correct. That is correct. So, so, so maybe the lesson was, you know, don't be too, uh, don't be too uh, generous to your opponent. But I would say that it is, it is a sad place in our political discourse that we can no longer just talk about disagreeing with folks on the other side, that folks on the other side have to be corrupt, that they have to be, you know, nefarious in some particular way in order for us to justify our opposition to them. I, I, I don't think that that's good or healthy. And at the same time, it can also be the case that Donald Trump is uniquely uh, corrupt in, in that way. Like, for instance, I, I would say that I disagree with Ron DeSantis, but I would not lob any of the, the sort of, you know, corrupt or blah, blah, blah kind of, you know, things that, at him that I would against a, a Donald Trump. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story. The New yeah, York we Post. Had that too. Yeah. So you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. Um, I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, some some folks on our team. It was like, hey, um, just so you know, like you should be on high alert. There was the, we we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of of um, uh, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. So our protocol is different from Twitter's. What Twitter did is they said you can't share this at all. Um, we didn't do that. What, what we do is we have. Um, if something is reported to us as potentially um, misinformation, important misinformation, we, we also have this third-party fact-checking program because we don't want to be deciding what's true and false. And for the, I think it was five or seven days when it was basically being, um, being determined whether it was false, um, the distribution on Facebook was decreased, but people were still allowed to share it. So you could still share it. You could still consume it. So when you um, say the distribution is decreased, in, it, it got shared. It, how does that work? It basically the ranking in newsfeed was a little bit less, so fewer people saw it than would have otherwise. So it definitely by what percentage? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's 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 meaningful. But I mean, but basically, a um, a lot of people were still able to share it. We got a lot of complaints that that was the case. Um, you know, obviously this is a hyper-political issues. So depending on what side of the political spectrum, you either think we didn't censor it enough or censored it way too much. But right. but we weren't sort of as black and white about it as, as Twitter. We just kind of thought, hey, look, if, if the FBI, which you know, I still view as a legitimate institution in this country, it's like very professional law enforcement, they come to us and tell us that we need to be on guard about something, then I want to take that seriously. Did they specifically say you need to be on guard about that story? I, I, no, I, I don't remember if it was that specifically, but it was. It basically fit the pattern. When something like that turns out to be real, is there regret for not having it evenly distributed and for throttling the distribution of that story? What do you mean evenly distributed? I mean uh, evenly in that it's not suppressed. It's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean because I mean it turned out. 
after the fact, I mean, the fact checkers looked into it. No one was able to say it was false, right? So, so basically, it had this period where it was getting list distribution. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I think like, I, I think it probably it sucks though. I think in the same way that probably having to go through like a criminal trial but being proven innocent in the end sucks. Like it still sucks to have have like that you had to go through a criminal trial, but at the end you're free. Um, so, so it's. I, I don't know if the answer would have been don't do anything or don't have any process. I think the process was pretty reasonable. You know, it's we still let people share it, but but obviously you don't want situations like that. But certainly much. All right, and uh, we are back. I'm going to awkwardly acknowledge that we have some technical difficulties, but we're back now. <laughs> and it's like the, it's 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 what comes with the territory. I am officially a podcaster. I feel like it's more official now that I've had something just completely go wrong on a show. That makes it like more authentic now. That, that makes um, me feel special that that I was there. Yeah, it, I I just blame you basically. <laughs> That's your right. bad luck. Um, right. But no, like so, and so I want to latch us back onto our conversation, which was a great conversation that we we're having. Um, so I want to respond directly uh, to evaluating what Zuckerberg said to Joe Rogan, because this is actually being touted as kind of like, aha, proof from those uh, right-leaning. Um, Zuckerberg basically admitted that the FBI basically came to Facebook and had them censor the Hunter, lap the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, and I think that um, cooler heads can prevail here. I think that both of us are kind of reasonable enough to kind of evaluate this more or less objectively. Um, what is your take on what you heard from Mark Zuckerberg? My interpretation of what he said was <clears throat> the FBI came to us in general as the election season was heating up and said, be on the lookout for stories that look like this stories that drop, you know, in October as October surprises that, you know, are unverified are salacious, you know, could potentially, you know, change the election similar to how, uh, WikiLeaks uh, was, you know, leaking stories in 2016 about Hillary Clinton, and that was affecting things. And so, my understanding is that that's what the FBI had said. And I actually think that that is a correct thing. I think that, you know, given the impact and influence that we saw that you know foreign actors had in 2016, it was correct that folks were on the lookout here. And then I think after that, the Hunter Biden story came out. And I think all of the platforms, uh, the major platforms, kind of looked at that story and said, okay, this has the flavor of, <clears throat> or the, you know, it looks like a duck, right? It looks like the thing that the FBI told us to be on the lookout for, and therefore we are going to treat it specially. And, you know, and, and Facebook, uh, you know, as Mark said, you know, limited its distribution, but still let people share it. Um, Twitter went even further in limiting its distribution um, by not letting people share it. But I think that that period of time lasted long enough for the story to get verified. And then once the story was verified, um, then I think they, they sort of took off, both platforms took off their, their restrictions. And that happened before the election. Well, I mean, and <laughs> lag is happening again. Uh, I, I, I think that a lot of people are not really on board um, with. Um, sorry, it's 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 buggy. So I'm just do this real quick. <laughs> a lot of people aren't on board with uh, 
the idea that there was a legitimate basis even in the 2016 election. Uh, because I, I think a lot of people even feel that with, when it comes to Hillary Clinton's emails and things like that, that even there was a kind of an attempt to downplay or cover that up too. A lot of people feel like if the idea is that there was Florent influence on the election by revealing true scandalous information about a candidate that the American public should know because it was true, then that's not that's not really foreign influence so much as information that negatively impacted the candidate got out. And like, would you apply the same standard if like some, to whatever extent they were foreign, whatever involved with, with I guess, leaking Hillary information about Hillary Clinton regarding the emails or, and there was stuff about Benghazi and stuff like that too. Like if, if the roles were reversed and, and they leaked stuff about Trump's taxes <laughs> or yeah. other, whatever scandalous things you, you associate with Trump right before the election and then he lost, then w would you would you feel like justice was served or would you feel like no this was corruption um i don't i don't know that i would use the terms justice or corruption in either case but i do think that look i think i think that the problem with this you know with foreign actors getting involved in any capacity is that they have their own agenda right and that it's not clear um are they selectively editing things, right? Are they editing things? Are they selectively editing things? Are they cherry picking to, to make certain points? Are they taking, you know, things out of context and, and, and whatnot, right, to, to sow their own agenda? Um, I think that, <clears throat> I think that it, it's, it's sort of bad across the, across the, the board, right? And so, and so it's not clear to me that, that what was happening in, in 2016 was that, you know, uh, factual, you know, in context, you know, information about Hillary Clinton was being leaked. I think it was very clearly, you know, a deliberate attempt to manipulate uh, information either through selective, you know, uh, cherry picking or, uh, or or potentially even editing um, that, that furthered an agenda. So, so I, I would just say in general, right, like I, I would say it's just not a good thing to do. And I think that the platforms do have a responsibility, right? And and this is, you know, goes back to the, you know, the, the product that I put together, you know, where I talked about responsible social media. I think the, the the platforms do have a responsibility to understand their impact on things like elections and then act in a small C conservative way um, with respect to uh, potential manipulation or weaponization of, of their platforms. Well, I mean, I I don't I don't have the answers in terms of what did didn't happen in 2016 election, but I guess what I'm really trying to signal is like it does I I do genuinely feel that a lot of the people who are complaining about the 2016 election um and as far as the accusation that Russian disinformation is what caused Hillary Clinton elect the election aren't being honest about <laughs> like good reasons not to like hillary clinton <laughs> oh yeah no no I, right I, I mean yeah and 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 to be clear like that that it's not my position that the you know and this comes up a lot as i sort of debate this topic it is not my position right that like the russians caused the outcome of the election um you know in the same way that like you know the guy that tried to light his shoe on fire or or, or you know had a bomb in his shoe on on a plane 
did, thankfully did not succeed, right? The shoe bomber many years ago, he didn't succeed. And yet he's still in prison for, for attempted terrorism, right? And so yeah. it, it, like two things can be true at the same time. It can be true that the Russians, you know, sought to influence the election and that they made an attack on our democracy and that that was not the determiner of the election, right? And so I think we can hold those two things separate. <clears throat> and I think, and I acknowledge that some people don't, um, but, but, but I try to, um, but I would still say that like even the attempt is, is bad. And, and I, would, I would hold that standard, I think, on, on either side. So if the Russians or the Ukrainians, right, like decided to leak Trump's taxes or something like that, um, I would still yeah. think that, that was bad. I, I got I just got some. <laughs> this is so ironic. I just got some um, some notifications from various different news outlets that more classified documents were found at Joe Bo Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, I think Thursday. Ne so is this the third? Is this the third batch? The third one, yeah, yeah. Ne next to the Corvette. So that I think that that story came out yesterday, and that's why I said like you know, they keep coming out. Is it is it um, third or fourth? I, <laughs> I don't even know anymore. My, my understand my understanding is it's it's the third, but you know who who knows at this point, right? So it's it's an interesting. I mean, again, this is sort of off topic, but it is an interesting thing that um, I, the question is why why doesn't nara know that these documents are missing right like why why is why are his lawyers finding these documents and then telling the government that classified documents are missing i think that's actually probably the most concerning part of all of this right is that the government could be missing classified documents and not know that they're missing that that's a problem right that's not right. that's not necessarily a joe biden problem but that that is a problem that all americans should be concerned about um okay i i, I just i just thought it was ironic that i got that notification like in the middle of our conversation yeah, yeah, right yeah, now yeah, about yeah. like politics political corruption uh, i'm also secretly trying to fix my camera <laughs> <laughs> because i don't want to like stop um oh god it's still lagging all right i guess i'm just gonna have to do it like this that is so annoying but it is what it is um okay let's let's get into hate speech <laughs> yeah let's let's yeah let's do it i'm gonna pivot to hate speech because i hate yeah. the fact that my camera's not working right <laughs> That's okay so okay so when it comes to hate speech like i actually think I, I i tend to lean towards the free speech crowd i'm not a free speech absolutist by any stretch of imagination i think everybody who's going to be honest about it has their limitations i think child pornography is a great limitation on free speech <laughs> for example um they used to use the 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 yelling fire in a crowded room i i get the point philosophically being made by that although i don't know what the legality of that is but it's a, it's a kind of a visceral example of a form of speech, a form of linguistic expression in particular, that can cause a lot of damage, uh, particularly yeah. in a situation where you're wolf crying, which is a term I kind of invented. Yeah. Well, I didn't really invent it, but I think it, it's pretty intuitive what that means, where you're just saying it and it's not really calls for emergency. And then you can cause all of that damage with no real emergency. Right. Yeah. Um, so those are the, the kinds of examples. It's like there are some proper limitations. We have slander and libels and we have all kinds of legal precedents for that. They have high standards of, of burdens of proof um defamation uh etc uh -huh. yeah those those seem like um proper limits and maybe i'm culturally biased because because my my sense that those are proper limits come from the fact that those limits are normal in the context in which i live which is the united states perhaps maybe there's good reasons behind them beyond that i i, I think that there is but maybe there's a bias there 
In other countries, the, the, the limitations go further. And so a lot of people focus on in on speech that has the ability to offend. And I think that that's actually not a good move. That's not a good way to understand hate speech if you want to take it seriously as far as legal legalities yeah. are concerned and limiting it legally. Yeah. Um, I think a better paradigm, and I was reading about this, and I was fascinated that I found this. Uh, I was reading about this uh, yesterday. A better paradigm um, would be uh, by a person by the name. What is this person's name? I looked them up before. Hold on. Um, Robert Mark Simpson wrote a very influential paper on the matter called Dignity, Harm, and Hate Speech. And the contention, as I understand it, and I barely started reading it, so I am not, I'm evoking something that I am not an expert on <laughs> that I yeah. found very interesting because I'm nerdy and I'm intellectual or I try and, to be, and I'm really philosophical. And by the and, and by the way, I haven't read it, and that's not going to stop me from giving you my opinion. <laughs> on it, so. That's that clubhouse culture. We opine <laughs> on everything, that's even right. if we don't know crap about it. No, that's but right. I mean, I still want to engage. I think that there's still some value in trying yeah. to engage with it, even though I'm just barely starting to understand it. But I say, I, I, I'm very good, I think, about that caveat. Like, I, I'm signaling yeah. to people, hey, take this with a grain of salt. I may not have understood everything. I may not have processed everything. But there's some basic ideas that I've grasped. So it's called Dignity, Harm, and Hate Speech, right? Um, in fact, oh, I can. I can share it. And then I can have an excuse to, like, not show <laughs> not show my, uh, my screen, uh, my, my, my video-less screen. Okay, here we go. So Dignity, Harm, and Hate Speech, Robert by Mark Simpson. So I'm going to read the abstract. It says, this paper examines two recent contributions to the hate speech literature. Oh, no, 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 wait. Do I want this? Yeah, yeah. One by Stephen Heyman, one by Jeremy Waldron, uh, which seek a justification for a legal restriction of hate speech in an account of the way that hate speech infringes against people's dignity. These analyses look beyond the first order hurts and disadvantages suffered by immediate targets of hate speech and consider the prospect of hate speech sustaining complex social structures whose wide scale operations lower the social status of members of targeted groups. Mm -hmm. In Heyman and Walder's accounts, we find plausible insights into the nature of identity-based social hierarchies and the harms that redound to subordinated people under the operations of such hierarchies. So I'm highlighting that because that's going to stand out to me in a second. Yeah. I argue, however, that both analyses are unsuccessful as justification for the restriction of free speech. So this person is going to argue against free speech uh, because they do not um, ultimately provide reason to think that hate speech is responsible for creating or sustaining identity-based social hierarchies. I have a critique similar or kind of in that vein, but I'm going to put that to aside for a second because I actually want to bolster or steal man as much as possible the kind of like the, the, the kind of um, pro hate speech side, meaning people who are advocating that we should have legal, more legal restrictions in the American context in particular um, to speech, because there are a whole bunch of politically pernicious things that can be done with, with speech that we need to protect people from. Okay. One of the ideas I want to hone in on is this. The idea isn't that we should protect people from hurt feelings. That trivializes the monumental nature of the harm people are trying to protect against. And it feeds into, I think, a caricature of what the left's interests are broadly. Although there are people on the left who do act as if what they're really trying to shield people from are hurt feelings, to be fair. But yeah. to steal man it, I don't think that's the best way to understand this, if you want to take it seriously. The best way to understand this is something more akin to we should be shielding people against 
forms of pernicious indignities, right? And that mm-hmm. that indignity piece is, is is a lot built into it that I want to want to expound on right real quick. It's not just about hurt feelings and whatever trauma can come from the experience of negative emotions over time. It's not just about that, although that's kind of part of what's built into indignity because a lot of people tend to feel um, dejected uh, and and in extreme forms, oppression and um, 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 profound dysphoria as a result of the indignity. But it's not the fact that I feel the feelings that makes it an indignity or makes the indignity in some sense morally reprehensible. It's it's the fact that the indignity in some sense does an injury to my status Mm-hmm, in a social mm-hmm, and political mm-hmm. context, yeah, and it forms the basis on which I will, I am subse- I am, I am subsequently likely to endure more indignities, right? Yes, yeah, right. So, so, so it's it's not just one time somebody called me the N word and I felt bad one day. It's that 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 use of that term marked a status that is being applied to me and people who share my t- phenotypical features that that forms the basis on which to 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 treat me as if I'm less than human yeah and that's the perniciousness that we're talking about when it comes to hate speech it's not the right. fact that I that I momentarily felt bad it's the fact that I am now subject to being treated as less than human yeah. In various different yeah. ways. And, and and sometimes, and there's levels of egregiousness too. So it might just be kind of like on a very small scale within my inner circle. Like there's this group of people who treat me like shit, right? But mm-hmm. it may be macro. And like now I'm existing in an entire society whereby, you know, uh, black people aren't allowed to go to certain restaurants and black people aren't allowed yeah. to eat at certain hotels and black people yeah. aren't allowed to, et cetera, right? And like we have visceral uh, actual historical precedent of that with the Jim Crow South that makes that more real to people, right? Because you know that yeah. history. But like, oh yeah, that can be replicated though, right? And so some yeah. people are arguing that that's exactly like this kind of thing is what's being done to the trans community. That these people are yeah. being treated as though they're all crazy, but but like, and 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 terminology is in like that is pejorative in nature and that's being evoked by and large by people on the right is being levied against a group of people and on that basis they're being treated like shit there's yeah. there's no there's no there's no um priority for public accommodations for them because 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 people view them as just strange or weird people discriminate against them in all kinds of situations in terms of like employment opportunities in terms of housing opportunities etc right and and I'm only I'm I'm sorry if I'm coming out preachy. I'm only elaborating on this to make it like visceral. Like what we're, what we're interested in is fundamentally not just about feelings. We're interested in like 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 profound impacts that are had on people's lives on the basis of immutable characteristics. Right. So yeah, I'm gonna stop there because right. I'm getting preachy and I can sense it. What do you think? <laughs> no, see, I think I think you're 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 honing in on something that's really important. And this was. Um, I had taken some notes on on this topic uh, before our conversation. I think that you know I liken this to um, to water, right, and and wetness. Uh, you know, you can't look at any particular molecule of H two O and say this is wet, right? Yeah. Wetness is a property that emerges from the collection of the molecules, right? And right. so, in a very similar way, I think hate speech and the harm that comes from it is something that in my mind should be thought of by looking at these broader um, impacts on the communities that are targeted by the speech right and so and so i think to the extent that 
to the extent that this debate or discussion about free speech versus hate speech gets complicated, I think it, it, it gets complicated when we try to look at it on the individual level, right? And we say, well, you, you know, can this person say this to that person there? It's like, well, you know, like that's sort of not the conversation, right? And, 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 you know, the government, um, any government, right? Like autocratic governments, you know, um, well, I was going to say they, they don't necessarily get into that specific level of like policing individual people, but actually that that's not entirely true that there are plenty of governments that, that, that do that. So I'll take that back. But, but I think to the extent that it makes our conversation not ours, you were in mind, but like the one that we're having in America, yeah, I think discourse. to the extent that it makes it just, yeah, the discourse difficult is when we try and individualize it or try and think about individual speech or individual, you know, individuals being offended, right? And I think that what you articulated is the way that I frame it, which is to think about the aggregate impacts of the speech and how that speech bolsters or, you know, bolsters existing, you know, power structures or, deconstructs you know certain power structures and what the implications are on the, the 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 communities that are targeted by that speech i think that that's the important way to to think about it so just to make sure i'm really steel manning this as best i can because i because yeah. i think i have a vested interest in in steel manning all sides of things to really make sure the discussions are more valuable like the basis on which there is any kind of justification, the strongest case that you can make, that there's a justification for making legal restrictions on people's speech such that they don't do what, what's, what's, what, what, what we would call hate speech is because what's at stake are all of the wider social implications that negatively implicate historically marginalized groups of people in particular. They tend to do that. There's a, a lot of historical precedent that using speech in such and such a way can can literally produce all kinds of social apparatus and norms and laws that, that disproportionately negatively impact certain groups of people. And, and the indignity that is being done or the injury or the harm that is being encapsulated by that goes beyond the, their experience of negative emotion. It, it goes to like profound impacts in their lives, whether or not they can get jobs, whether or not they can provide for themselves, whether or not they're going to be accepted socially, whether or not they're going to be ostracized, whether or not they're going to be able to live their lives to the fullest. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about right. feelings. We're talking about well, like people's lives. Free, freedom, freedom and happiness, right? So, so if yeah. we, if we think about, you know, you know, I would assert that the, the aim of a moral society is to, increase you know more happiness for more people right and and the the mechanism that we found uh to increase happiness for people is to increase their freedom and autonomy to make choices for their lives and for their families' lives that that um that have a greater outcome of happiness for for them and to the extent that those things are limited um I think we have to, like, we have to, you know, really justify why someone's freedom and liberty uh, should be limited. Now, it's funny for me to to talk about that in, not in the context of free speech, but in the context of like the impacts of hate speech on people, right? But, but, um, but I think what we're saying here is that is that 
you know, the freedom for someone or the freedom for, for, you know, media outlets or whatever to, to make certain arguments that impact negatively the lives of other people, those arguments take away the freedom of that targeted group. And so I think that we should think about freedom and free speech in, in, in terms of how it's impacting the freedom of, of the people being targeted as well. And, and I don't think we, we frame it in those terms, right? That we, we tend to think about the freedom of the individual to express themselves, but we don't think about the freedom that we're taking away of the people who are targeted by that speech. Oh, Fair I'm enough. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> One second. No worries. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> no worries. I understand. I'm 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 very accommodative. Um, and I got to go in 30 minutes anyway, so sure. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so no pressure. But yeah, so okay. So I think I maybe done the maybe the, a pretty good job of steel manning it. Oh. I do think that there's uh, okay. Do you want to say? Sorry. Let, let me let me add, let me add to that. I will also say that I will also acknowledge that I am, I am, as uncomfortable I think as many Americans in entertaining the notion of legal strictures on speech, right? So, so I, I, I'm not, I don't want to present myself as saying like, you know, that, yeah, like, you know, we should have, you know, that I'm pro legal restrictions. I guess I would probably lean more on like, you know, that they may be okay in certain circumstances, but obviously lots and lots and lots of conversation, lots and lots of examination has to happen Typically, when I think of, you know, free speech and, and the people sort of pushing back against it, or, or sorry, the people, the free speech absolutists, I think, aren't really talking about free speech. I think they're talking about something other than free speech, which we can get into. Um, but when we talk about legal restrictions, um, I do think that the bar has to be high. But I do think that this, this examination of the overall impact on the target group and the power structures that are being reinforced is sort of the way to, to start looking at that. Well, what do you think that they're really interested in, if not free speech? Um, I think that the free speech absolutists, and again, um, perhaps paint, painting with a broad brush, um, I think that they are, if you listen, if you, you know, the way that I hear most of their arguments are, well, you used to be able to say this, and now you can't say it without someone, you know, getting upset or telling you that you're wrong or whatever. And it's like, there's nothing in free speech that says that you get to say something without consequence, right? There's nothing in free speech that says that you get to say stuff and not have people be upset by it or even offended by it um, and tell you that they're offended by it. I think that what they're fundamentally complaining about is that they no longer have the social power and the power over the, the media and, and the, the mainstream discourse to suppress that dissent, right? And, and that really what they're doing is they're sort of making a claim that they should once again sort of be in positions of power so that they don't have to hear that dissent because that dissent is, you know, uh, is, is friction, it's, you know, it, it, it brings them all kinds of consternation and they would much rather just live in a world where, where they believed that everyone felt the way that they did or that if they didn't, that those people didn't matter. And so I think that that's, that's a lot of what the free speech argument, you know, that folks are making today come, comes down to, in my opinion. I've heard this kind of thing before. I, 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 
am a little more skeptical about that as a general explanation for the motivations of people who argue in this way. I think that yeah. prob- maybe a subset of them, and, and, and if I had to guess, I would say probably a, low, a small percentage, but that, that's not really proving anything. That's just more a reflection of um, maybe the limits of my understanding or my biases. I, I actually do. I think that a, a, another explainer for at least another subset of unspecified percentage of them is that they genuinely don't see any reason for the dissent. Ah, they, yes. don't, they don't think they don't think it's justified. They think that it's based on oversensitivities or something like that. And the the demonstration for them intuitively of this is, well, this was accepted as normal and it was perfectly fine. And now all of a sudden it's a problem. Right. And yeah. I don't and I think that people who think like that haven't necessarily thought about all the nuances. And I think there's a fair criticism there. But I don't know that they yeah. are coming from a position of like. Like, I just want to dominate society or I want to preserve some kind of privilege that I have. I don't even know that a lot of these people even recognize themselves as having privilege. That's that's you know that I mean? is very true. That is very true. I, and 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 I can't ascribe motivations to individuals. Right. I, I, I can only sort of look at the, the, the general sort of movement. I think you're I think you're right um, uh, in in sort of the that observation that you know look we talked about in the beginning right that like the use of the term negro used to be okay and then it wasn't okay um and i remember you know when i was in college uh you know a friend of mine a white friend of mine you know said like you know very earnestly when when did negro not like stop being an okay word to use right and i think that there there are some people that that sometimes find themselves sort of dislocated right like like society is kind of shifted out from underneath them and they're not aware and so then I think that also drives, you know, some some of this backlash, right? But in the end, I think that, you know, look, there's a lot of different motivations. I think some people that are in the media, especially on the right wing, the right wing sort of influencer folks, right? I think a lot of what they're arguing about is more about distribution and reach and about things that impact their business and their bottom line, but they frame it in terms of, of free speech. Right. But I don't I don't think it's really about free speech. I think it's more sort of a base concern that they have um, that like they don't get distribution on this platform and they have to be relegated to a smaller platform where they they get less audience. And, and you know, you, you don't get the bill as high in your speaker fees or your podcasting fees if you can't show a big Twitter following or blah, blah, blah. Right. And so I think like they have much more base concerns. Right. But then I think that the way that that sort of filters out to the larger discourse is. Um, you know, kind of people feeling like their like their speech is being restricted. When in reality, what's happening is they are hearing more from the people that are offended and upset than than uh, than they were before. And yes, I think that you are correct, which is that a lot of folks don't feel like those offenses are like like they don't think that there's anything offensive about what they said. But I think both of us are old enough and you know both of us um you know being being people of color and you know me sort of uh you know being in environments where where often i was the only person of color in that environment for a long time i think we both know and have experience where people you know can say things that that they genuinely feel aren't offensive like up until recently right everyone was rooting for the washington redskins 
that was deeply offensive to 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 a group of people but for years and years and years right like that that voice of you know wasn't getting highlighted and the people that were donning the you know the paraphernalia and whatnot i'm sure didn't didn't think that they were being offensive they just thought well this is just the name of the team and yet we sort of you know now i'm going to use a, a charged term we woke up to the fact that that was not uh, you know that that was an offensive term to some people and and then society shifted and some people are sh going to shift with it and some people are going to backlash against it Sorry, it's I, incredible I, I that things there, but. no no I, I love what you said i love the vein it, it's incredible that you chose that example because I genuinely, and this is not me playing devil's advocate, have questions about the extent to which the term Redskins was actually offensive to the general population of indigenous people, because I got a lot of mixed reviews. Some of them didn't find it offensive and in fact lauded the fact that what it did was it, it, it launched a depiction of a particular conception of a indigenous warrior into pop culture. And they saw themselves in that. And what's ironic is the way that you framed it, and you're not the first person to do this or the only person to do it. You, the way you framed it is, no, th th there's a long history of people being offended, but their voices weren't amplified until recently. And now we've been made aware or woke up to it. It's like, but the voices of people like the person I just described were suppressed in that process. And so it's, it is an interesting question about like, like, what was the percentage of the general indigenous population who have any opinions on this that were offended versus that weren't offended? And like, was there any effort to weigh that at all? Or did the people who were offended get priority because it, because of the perception that people took for granted that, that giving them a voice was in some sense undoing some form of oppression? Because I think a lot of people who genuinely take this seriously in good faith think that, and they don't want to be guilty of of doing any indignities to groups of people, particularly that group of people, given the yes, history of yes, this country. Yes, yes. So, so they have a whole bunch of presuppositions about what it means to culturally appropriate, about what colonization, what the impact of colonization had on Native peoples, about 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 the, the tendency for quote unquote, the white man to, th to take things from other groups that they've dominated historically and yes. built that into this idea of like, we need to amplify these voices and yeah. maybe skip the step of like, actually let's objectively sit back and see like what percentage of the population and then do this democratically maybe like that. I have questions around those nuances. And every time I try to broach that subject with people, I usually, it's usually people left of center who really attached to the presuppositions I just tried to summarize and they get offended on behalf of the groups that they're not even members of. <laughs> like, yeah. how dare you even question yeah. this? You're not a member of the in-group, therefore you have you don't have any validity to even opine on this. And it's like, well, okay, I think, I guess. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you and I, have, you know, people of color, you know, black people in particular, I think, you know, like we, we could have a, a, a discussion, you know, if it was the Washington, you know, cotton pickers, if it was the, you know, Washington N-words, you know what I mean? Like, like, the, like, like there are some people, right, that, that sort of, you know, talk about reappropriating that word and, and, you know, and, and taking it back to take power away from, from, from its use, the, the N-word in particular. And then there are some people, you know, who are just offended by it. I think the question is, you know, are do the people that you know going back to the Redskins now? 
are the people that, you know, are, um, that feel like it was sort of empowering or bringing, you know, uh, you know, shedding the light on, on, on Native American warriors, were their feelings running as deep, were they as loud as, you know, the people who felt the opposite? Again, I don't know. I'm not in that group. I don't know that, you know, that these things, I mean, that we can sort of take a plebiscite or, you know, vote on, on each one of these things. Um, but I do know that the voices of the people that were offended were sort of the loudest in that conversation, even if we acknowledge that there were voices of people in that same in-group that, that, well, that weren't offended. If we had a, if we had a, a, a franchise named the Blackskins, which I think would be the most yeah, sure. accurate comparison, and it had a depiction of like a Maasai warrior, mm-hmm. right? And it launched into popular culture, a depiction of a warrior that people now have an emotionally vested interest in learning about because it's on everything in a certain city, germane to the ways that we, you know, we have memorabilia and things like that to to franchise sports franchises. And people and a significant amount of our population recognize the value in popularizing these African warriors and the lore that comes with those African warriors because the team in the way that it's structured took an interest in it, right? I think that would be the best way to replicate the kind of dilemma that I'm, that I'm at. On the one hand, there's an appropriation piece, which is not trivial, by the way. And I, I didn't mean yes. to make it seem like it was trivial yeah. because it's being, it's being in some sense appropriated or, 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 or garnered or taken or stolen, whatever you prefer, for a purpose that's really far removed from the cultural origins and purposes of these 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 cultures and these images right Right. but it's also being done in a way that is actually promulgating into public consciousness the awareness that these things even exist in the first place and so like it's it's like you're weighing the (laughs) the value of popularizing this thing and making it like well known and like creating opportunities for people to learn about about something that would be obscure to the vast majority of the population. And a lot of African peoples in this country have roots to, or connections to that. Um, like you, you, you have that versus like, here's a, here's a depiction of a black person for the purposes of commodification um, that is not really benefiting the communities from, and the cultures from which it, well, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not it's, primarily, it's, it's not primarily doing so. It's, it's, the, it's the uncle Ben's it's the, um, yeah, you Aunt know, Jemima's. The, Aunt Jemima's, right, right, right. So there's a right. there's a there's a homage versus an appropriation and and and, and sometimes uh, stereo stereotyping that were that's part of the cost benefit analysis, if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, just a little bit, but but I think yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, but again, I think the difference in my mind would be, you know, if the the team formerly known as Washington Redskins, if it were owned by a native tribe, um, if it, uh, you know, were sharing profits with, you know, with tribes, um, or if it were actively using that platform and that awareness to, to drive the kind of thing that you're talking about, you know, I suspect that most people that were fans of that franchise casually engaged with the mascot in ways that were very superficial, right? Um, in the same way that, you know, people that picked up Aunt Jemima, you know, uh, uh, syrup um, didn't go look and try and find the history of actual Aunt Jemima, right? Um, 
and so and so I I understand the argument. I, I just don't know like how much it it it, it sort of weighs true, right? But but I but I I do understand the argument. But but I but I I guess I would say like going back to then sort of the 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 conversation we we're having on on hate speech. I think that what it does exemplify are the the cases where um, look it's going to be a spectrum, right? You're going to have people on the the bleeding edge, um, you know, sort of the bleeding heart liberals that are very um, sensitive about everything and are pushing us to to be more empathetic about um, about each other and, and to try and be more thoughtful about our language. And that is sometimes going to seem, you know, sort of crazy to, to all of us, right? But I think that, you know, if we look at history, I think you know, a lot of things that maybe seem crazy in the beginning of, you know, in the 60s, if you had said, hey, don't use the word Negro, use African-American, like that would have seemed crazy, but now it seems, you know, reasonable. Um, at the same time, you're going to have people that are, that are going to backlash against that and, and they're going to be upset at, um, at, you know, why are you policing my speech? Why are you telling me that I can't think this thing, that I grew up thinking that everyone that I know and love thinks, right? Yeah. I, I understand what you're saying, but I, I do want to maybe give a little voice to the, to the other side of, in terms of pushing back against this. Cause I, I intended to do that. And then, and then maybe we can wrap up cause I got to go soon, but like, it, it does seem like the, the policing of speech does get very carried away. <laughs> uh, sure. And maybe, maybe a case in point would be, did you, did you hear about um, Stanford's list of no, no words? I, I didn't hear about Stanford's, but I'm sort of generally aware of of that of that that trend because you know we've had that at at, at my work at my day job. Um, you know, we got some uh, notification that uh, that we shouldn't use the word blacklist anymore, blacklist and whitelist. Um, yes. That we should you know use blocklist and I don't know whatever the other thing is, right? Um, and so I'm generally aware of that sort of movement to to to, to change language in that way. Okay, fair enough. So the 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 what I want to evoke right now, and this, I actually did a clubhouse room on this recently, so I'm actually glad I get to like repurpose this because <laughs> it was uh, I got some interesting takes in that room. Um, so this is not as underdeveloped thought as as some of my other thoughts have been. Uh, but what the official the the formal um, name for this is called the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, and. Stanford is not the first person to do this. In fact, Stanford even recognizes in what I'm about to show you uh, the fact that um, they're continuing uh, something that they've gotten from other institutions uh, of higher learning. And it's Stanford's IT department specifically. So I'm going to maximize this to hide the fact that <laughs> my camera's not working. <laughs> okay, so Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative, and it's kind of like a little explainer. And I think this is where like screenshots of a web page or printouts of a web page um, that it, that ended up becoming password protected after after it got out that what Stanford was trying to do and it became an issue in the free speech kind of culture war. Um, so the elimination of harmful language initiative is a multi-phase, multi-year project to address harmful language in IT at Stanford. Um, EHLI is one of the actions prioritized in the statement of solidarity and commitment to action, which was published by Stanford uh, CIO Council and People of Color and Technology Affinity Group in December of 2020. The goal of the Elimination of Harmful Language Initiative is to eliminate many forms of harmful language, including racist, violent, and biased, e.g. disability bias, ethnic bias, ethnic slurs, gender bias, implicit bias, sexual bias, language, in Stanford website and code. 
Stanford websites and code is the limitation is the limited purview that this is supposed to apply. The purpose of this website is to educate people about the possible impacts of words we use. Language affects different people in different ways. We are not attempting to assign levels of harm to the terms of the site. We also are not attempting to address all informal uses of language. This website focuses on potentially harmful terms used in the United States, starting with a list of everyday language and terminology. Our suggested alternatives are in line with those used by peer institutions and within the technology community. Content warning. What's interesting about this is that they don't say trigger warning because trigger warning is actually going to make this list of no-no words. I can't say anymore, but it's a content warning. This website contains language that is offensive or harmful. Please engage with this website at your own pace. And then it goes on to list a whole bunch of ableist terms. You can't use addict. You have to use person with a substance use or disorder. You can't use basket case. You have to use nervous. (laughs) Some of these are hilarious. Um, You can't use crazy. You have to say surprising or wild. (laughs) Yeah. And so in this clubhouse room, as you can imagine, we took this to task and had a field day with these because some of these were almost unanimously perceived as ridiculous. Some of them, not so much. Um, right. But let, let, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. It, it, you know, so so when I see things like this, I mean, again, I think I, I can imagine. You know, at some point in time, right, that that there was a list like this where where the term Negro showed up, right, um, or, or something yeah. like that. What's interesting to me is that, you know, all of these efforts, including the one, you know, that I referenced at at my work, these are all elective things, right? These are things that, that, that institutions are saying, we are going to take this on ourselves because this is sort of a statement of values. And what I find interesting is that it gets framed in terms of free speech when actually this is the expression of free speech. Right. This is Stanford's expression of free speech saying we are going to stop saying this and we are going to start saying that. Now, I think they clearly said in the beginning, we're not trying to police casual speech. So we're not saying you, student X, cannot say this to student Y. But instead, we are saying that we are saying, well, well, here's here's what they will do, um, which is interesting. They will model this speech and their communications to their students. And then it is sort of up to the student whether or not they want to emulate that model or if they want to sort of buck it, right? I mean, yeah. Well, it, well, in principle. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. But you're right. Like it, there, is a, there is a possible world in which it goes exactly the way you described. And and when you put it that way, it seems pretty innocuous. I, I don't think that most people would have a problem with that. I think people's suspicions are that it's not going to go that way. People's suspicions are that it's going to start here. And then, and then all of a sudden there's going to be legal liabilities for people not adhering to these standards. And, and that, I think that's where, that's where I sort of, that's what I question, right? Because I, it, to me, it seems like this is the expression of free speech is someone saying, I'm going to stop saying this. I'm going to start saying that. And, and, you know, look in all conversations, right. And I'm sure you see this all the time on clubhouse, you know, people start to, to emulate, we start to use the language sometimes of the people in the conversation and parrot it back to them. Right. Um, as a way of sort of signaling that, that we're, that we're listening to them or that we're in the conversation. And so I think what they're doing here is they're saying, we're going to model this. So in our communication in Stanford's communication, with you know, with with alumni, with with students, whatever, um, we're going to start using these terms, and then yeah, it may be the case that just 
through social norms, um, some of these terms start getting adopted and people start using them back. But that's a much more subtle form of, you know, quote unquote coercion, right? Than, than I think the sort of like straightforward draconian, you know, uh, big brother 1984 kind of ways that, that people think that, that this is going to work. Right, that that there will be, you know, your neighbor is going to be reporting you to some government bureau because they heard you using a certain term or something like that, and you're going to get a visit from from some, you know, men in black or something. I I just don't. I mean, I'm I'm sort of exaggerating, but you know, I I, I don't think that 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 we're in any danger of that. On the flip side, um, and I'm speaking fast because I know we're, we're running short on time. But on the flip side, I just read an article yesterday about uh, a um, a, a library in small town Michigan that got closed down because conservatives were upset that it contained books about LGBTQ uh, topics and uh, books, you know, that sort of, you know, may get in the hands of of children, uh, you know, and that they might, you know, start to question their 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 I don't know their sexual orientation or whatever. Um, and so the the library is shutting down. Right now, that to me seems like the real attack on free speech, you know, a library shutting down because uh, people don't like the content of the books that are inside of it. Um, and yet that, I think, you know, because it's driven typically from the right, doesn't get as much purchase as, you know, uh, Stanford putting up, a, a you know, the, this page saying, hey, this is how we're going to talk. Well, I think it does. It just gets it from the left, right? So a lot of, I mean, you heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, fair, fair enough. Fair, fair enough. But, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't hear the free speech people talking about like, oh my god, like, like pearl clutching about, um, you know, about a library that's closing um, because the government has defunded the library, right? I mean, that, that, that is like, that, that is sort of like the thing that they, that they really care about is, is you know, the government taking these actions. But Stanford, you know, um, making this elective action, I think, gets gets much more purchase. Well, among certain people, right? So, like, I, I what I'm, I guess, what I'm fundamentally pushing back on is like, I do think that that there is pearl clutching about precisely what you're talking about, and I think that's one of the reasons why you know about it. <laughs> um, but it's not saturated across everyone. It's just that people who have certain leanings are more like liable to to seize on that as an example of, well, this is really where the free speech issue is really an issue. And people more right of center are more likely to seize on this example. Cause I actually know about the, the library example and actually what's, and again, not that I'm not trying to be accusatory, but one nuance that I feel like you left out is like <laughs> the contents of some of them books are not appropriate for kids. And so like fundamentally what a lot of those people, not to justify the shutting down of the library, but what a lot of those people are up in arms against is that nuance. It's not merely the fact that it has a pro LGBT message is that the sexually, ex the sexually explicit contents of a book, like gender queer, for example, the, uh, the, in allowing young children to read that fundamentally crosses the line with parents. And it's not even necessarily about the LGBT. It would, it would be just as fundamental. They would, a lot of these parents would be just as against it, even if it depicted the same kinds of graphic stuff, but it was, it was, it was a straight, person or it was it was heterosexual they still wouldn't right. think it was appropriate for kids so like that nuance needs to be taken into account along with all the other stuff which i don't think i would i wouldn't dismiss all the other stuff too i am not cool with just shutting down libraries based on the fact that it has some books that you don't like 
that right. that is straight out of Fahrenheit 451. But at yeah. the same time, well, the, I the do recognize speech. that we do have we do we. It is good to not allow kids or enable kids to have certain kinds of content. <laughs> I also agree with that too. So right. we got to weigh both. But the, right. But the free speech absolutist, right? If you're really being a free speech absolutist would say, okay, parents, then don't, don't get that book for your kid. Right. Like, like the, like, you know, so, so, th so they would say like parents, if, if you disagree with this book, then don't show this book to your kid. And if other parents make a different choice, then those parents should have the freedom to make that choice but using the power of the government to take away everyone's freedom and access to this, to making the choice, right? I think that's, that's the, the piece, right? It's, it's like, it's like once, you, once you go into using the power of the government to take away everyone's choice, even if 98% even if of people would say, yeah, this, this book is sort of inappropriate for kids, going so far as shutting down the library, taking away even the choice of that 2%, because you, for your cultural, you know, uh, mores find it offensive. I think that that's, there's an inconsistency there at least, right? With th that, that action. And then those same people that will sort of like pick at the, the, the screen that we just saw or talk about how, you know, not distributing Hunter Biden's laptop is, you know, some, the story about it is, is somehow limiting on free speech. Well, I mean, yeah. But uh, but there's a lot of nuance there. So so yeah, yeah. I think if you framing it the way you framed it, then yeah, there would be an inconsistency. I think that there's a steel man version of of their perspective where it doesn't necessarily have that particular inconsistency. It may have others, um, because I think fun like fundamentally what a, what a careful person is is interested in is protecting children um, from like being exposed to adult content and all of the negative impacts that that can have for their developing brains, particularly if they're really really young. Um, and like it's not it's it, it does involve mores or morals that they take very seriously, but not in a trivial way. And, and like like I I do think that have like exposing young children to like sexually explicit material actually does do damage to kids. I think that most people right left and center would not approve of that in general. And so like I don't know that there's that much of a controversy to take that stance. And if you take that stance, then what you're fundamentally interested in is not so much the shutting down of the of the library or even the silencing of speech, so much as making sure that certain kinds of content does not get in the hands of children. That, uh, and but, I think that that's fundamentally what they're what what they're interested in. Now, maybe they're misconstruing it, but I think that that's what they in good at least a subset of them in good faith are trying to do. So, so I I agree that some of them think that that's what's happening, but again, I think uh, I think that we can look at, and maybe this is for part two of the conversation. But I think that we can look at many different uh, things in life, uh, in history, where children were sort of used as the cudgel, if you will, to push a larger agenda. So I, I would find it, um, I, I would find it surprising, if not shocking, if these people were like totally on board with LGBTQ rights, but just for for adults, right? And and that and that their concerns were were strictly around kids. In the same way that you know we heard, um, you know, people uh, when they tried to integrate. Uh, schools, right, or when they tried to integrate, um, uh, you know, maybe public pools would be the, the better example, right? And so it's like integrating public pools, the people that were against it, then all of a sudden said, oh, my God, like, we're going to have kids mixing and blah, blah, blah. And like, that's going to be bad for, you know, for whatever reasons. Um, but they use kids because they know that 
that kids are sort of a, a triggering thing for other parents and that, you know, that, that we, we have our deep emotions about our children and, and our desire to protect them and that we're going to act irrationally, you know, to, to protect them. But I think that it pushes a larger agenda. And so, again, closing down a library affects not just the kids, but the adults as well. And I think if they were really honestly trying to keep it out of the hands of kids, you know, they could, you know, put it in a lockbox, you know, in a section of the library, make it so that, you know, only an adult could check it out or, you know what I mean? Like, there are other mechanisms that, that they could do, but shutting down the library because they didn't want a book to get in the hands of kids when it's not clear that it was getting in the hands of kids. I think that betrays that their ultimate goal was really to, to sort of make a stand against LGBTQ rights in general and not just the protection of kids well sense. a subset of them are actual classical liberals though um yeah. i don't know i don't know i don't know what yeah. percentage of them are so like i the the anti-lgbtq stuff i think may not apply to everyone i, I do think that yes I'm, I'm painting with broad brushes for sure yeah but 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 i mean you have gays against groomers these are people who these are actual members of the lgbtq community in most cases because that's who founded it they're they fundamentally are against what they perceive as the attempt for people who are amenable to pedophilia or or, or minor attracted persons and, and and are trying to like like get safe haven under the banner of LGBTQ plus like they're, they're fundamentally against that and that's what they're fighting against and it's it's to the point where other other fellow members of the LGBTQ community are accusing those members of the LGBTQ community of not really being for the cause and of being in some sense traitors to the cause and that's an interesting dynamic because you have kind of two in group fighting with each other about like what the best way to approach that is and like when you like if even those people which maybe i think a minority percentage wise i don't know for all i know this is what i've been told so let's say it's a minority faction within that community that that actually sees this as an issue and they're being lumped in with the right wing even though they're not their politics aren't really right wing per se because like a lot of the things that they believe and think are actually antithetical to what has been traditionally considered right wing in terms of their stances on gay marriage and all that kind of stuff although now the right is kind of getting a lot of disaffected liberals yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so yeah, i mean yeah. you can call it but like all all that to say i actually think that this is actually an extremely controversial thing and it's not as it's not that simple not that, not that you thought that it was um but the but the point i'm making is i do think that there's some substance to the idea of being opposed to young children being exposed to adult content and on that basis like wanting for that to not be permitted you can you can frame that as a form of censorship and that would implicate free speech but like the question then becomes whether or not it's censorship in the in the same way that we consider justified when we bar child porn child pornography or other things that we other things that we think are proper limitations of free speech or if this is more in the fahrenheit 51 case where it's like no actually you're just like fundamentally interested in what you consider reprehensible ideas from your conservative point of view right wingers right like that's that's really where the debate is and it's not really obvious which one wins out and then the other example i wanted to give you before is you likened it to cases where children are kind of used to forward an agenda and i do con completely concede that that has happened historically and it may for all i know be happening now but an, but but compare that to another example where think about why we have age limits and age restrictions on the consumption of alcohol and cigarettes and why now we are barring vapes from 
K through 12 schools? Why are we doing yeah. that? Right. Yeah. Because I think that there's a general recognition that these things that, that that maximizing access to these things for kids is somehow is something that we have a, a public interest in not allowing. And right. you can consider those forms of censorship or infringements of freedom. But I think that most people will consider those legitimate ones. Right. And so yeah. like the question becomes, is this book example when it comes to certain kinds of books like that? Or is it more like the cases you're, you're talking about? I think that's really the debate is. And, and I think but I think the way that we can tease that apart is to to say who's affected. Right. So in the case of alcohol, we say people under 21 can't buy alcohol. But that's different than saying no one can buy alcohol because kids might get their hands on alcohol. Right. And That's so true. and so and so in this case, right, if we're but saying wait, wait, we're gonna... but, we, but we would shut down a, an establishment that was selling indiscriminately. We uh, would we, do that. We 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 would. But I think we would first go in and say, like, I think, you know, I, I think they would go in first and do some investigation and figure out, like, are they intentionally not looking at people's IDs, right? Are they like intentionally, it's kind of like, you know, slipping yeah. into kids or whatever, or, or is there like a breakdown in the system, right? right. And, so, and so in the same way, I think, you know, the evaluation of the library, look, when the library shuts down, no one can get to it, adult or child, right? And right. I think that, that, that the constructive way to look at that would have been, you know, in the same way that, that you know, uh, Playboy magazines, you know, in the, in the old days on, on the newsstands used to be open and kids could, you know, jump up there and get them and look at them. And then at some point they said, hey, that's bad. So let's put them in like plastic and, you know, do all this kind of stuff. Right. But they didn't shut down the newsstands. They just came up with a different system to to do the thing that they wanted to do. Right. And I think that that's that's what I'm saying here is I think that the people that are shutting down the library are going to an extreme because I think they have a different agenda because I think if one was really thoughtful about uh, really, you know, keeping things age appropriate for kids, that there were other mechanisms that they could have put in place in the library to do that. May I mean, I, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I, 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 the only pushback I have is like, I'm actually not sure it's as it's that bad because I don't know for how long the library is going to be shut down. I don't know if there if there is an investigation going on, and so like it, it makes it hard for me to evaluate which case it's like are they being too heavy-handed and they're just shutting it down willy-nilly or are they shutting it down temporarily to investigate what's going on so that they can reopen it later with some kind of restrictions like i don't no, know so, what's going on yeah so, so so what i read today in, in this article was that they defunded it right so they they the the conservatives kind of took control of the library board and you know the the local uh, uh city council or whatever um and that there was a vote that was held and um, and they they voted to rescind the tax that was being used to fund the library. And so in 2024, it'll run out of money. Um, and that they then people put back on the ballot a vote to re restore the tax. Uh, but even though more people voted to restore the tax than voted to take it away, not enough people voted to restore the tax. And therefore, the 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 library simply has no more funding after 2024 so it is effectively shut down or it will you know try and run on donations or whatever right um, but again i think i think unless, that, unless it's funded before 2024 that's what i'm saying so like that's... It, it, well but i think that there's no i think that there there was no intention from the people that that rescinded the tax 
to say like this is a temporary thing, right? I think it's different to say like, hey, like we're the public health inspectors. We're going to go shut down your your establishment until we can establish why people are getting sick here, and then when you get a clean bill of health, we'll let you reopen. Like that's that's one thing, but that's not what happened here, right? I think they made a structural change to the to the funding structure itself, so that the library could no longer operate because they were upset about this particular book, and I think that 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 says more about their sort of like general thoughts and feelings about about this i, I i'm sorry i do have to you gotta go okay all right i was about to go into something else but i won't okay <laughs> so no i appreciate your time and and i do have to go too as well um but yeah this has been fun and would love to have you back um i will end with this final question real quick on a scale of one to ten uh how much how much did you enjoy ten being you enjoyed it a lot one not a lot at all how much did you enjoy being on the podcast this was an 11 and i think we need to have a part two maybe even a part three we didn't get to uh, there i made a bunch of notes there was a whole bunch of stuff that we didn't get to but i loved it this yeah. was great yeah i'm down and I, i'll be uh trying to schedule that with you uh, uh in, in, the, in the next few uh days or so um so yeah i i, I thought it was great too uh, i was looking forward to this because i usually when we talk we really go deep so that's why i was just yeah. like i was like this is gonna be awesome uh, but yeah, we definitely got to do it again. Uh, this free speech versus hate speech thing. I'm gonna have like 18 episodes before I know it, man. It's, <laughs> yeah, a lot of a lot into it. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, man. Okay. All right. I, all right. I, I wave to you. Uh, say goodbye to my audience, and then uh, you have a great one. Okay. All right, man. Take care, and uh, <laughs> we will talk soon. All right. Take care, man. All right. This has been the Black Muse Podcast. I am your host, JC Muse, aka the Black Muse. That was really, really fun. I really, really appreciate having conversations with Che. I really hope that y'all appreciated it too. Despite the technical difficulties that I had, I'm not using my regular webcam. I was using a camera that I had before, but it kept glitching for some reason. And I don't fully understand why. I'm going to try to resolve that for my next episode, hopefully. Uh, I got a brand new camera in here that I don't even know how to hook up, but hopefully I can get that one going and then it'll be amazing. I'll have all of the stuff. Uh, uh, I'll have like, you know, super high definition or whatever. Uh, but yeah, that was really, really fun, man. And uh, yeah, the free speech versus hate speech, man, it's really an issue, but I'm glad we got to get into the nitty gritty uh, before time ran out. Uh, so that that has been this episode. Until next time, peace. <laughs>